Reese Witherspoon. I don't know if this bitch is going to work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jennifer Anderson. Welcome to the morning, morning show. show. Ooh, look at this. Well, <laughs> we're going to get our intro eventually. We'll get it down. By the end of the season, we'll get it down. It's going to be, we're going to be, our intro is going to be so good that somebody's going to take it, put it to some trap music, and it's going to become a, a TikTok sound. Well, and in case you're confused, uh, this is actually the t- coffee and tequila. <laughs> in case you don't know what the hell you're listening to, welcome to Coffee. Well, it sounds like I don't even know what show I'm on <laughs> like, right now. You look so red. You look like you. I was like just so embarrassed by saying that. Shoved the biggest stick up your ass and turned it, the dial up to 110 degrees. Zachary, we cannot yeah. be saying the oh, word. Yeah. So Mondays are morning show days today. Welcome, welcome to Coffee and Tequila, the Monday Monday morning show. Um, Fridays are going to be our late show, and today's April April fourth. April 4th, so yeah. we might be finding you guys on your commute to your work yeah. on Monday morning. So just uh, take a deep breath, and you're going to have a good day. Let me send you good energy. Are you talking to them, or are you talking to yourself? I'm, I'm talking to both of us, because <laughs> tomorrow I'm also going to be by the, going back and forth. Yeah, we're recording this on a Sunday, so by the time you're listening to this, you should be at work right now. I know. And speaking of work, you so just started too. You I did just yeah. start. This episode is also kindly being sponsored by Helix Sleep, and we will let you know a little bit more about them a little bit later. Brenda's over there sleeping in the corner. He's like, "You guys are liars. It is not the morning. It is actually very late at night, and it is my bedtime." I know if you hear any snoring, it's all Brenda. We used all to we used to always be Whitney snoring in our videos. We used to have her snores all over our videos. <laughs> so enjoy this snoring. It's uh, additional ASMR. Today we'll be talking about Farrell's children, and just so you know, we are not talking about Will Farrell's children. <laughs> is, is that is that bad? Is that an insensitive joke? I don't know. You're just gonna do it. I, I, I thought it was funny. <laughs> I thought it was a good joke. You got a joke. Good joke. We're talking about feral well, we, children we, today. because we talk uh, about pop culture a lot. So I was like, <laughs> we need to make sure. Will Ferrell's children. We're bringing the uh, the informational portion to the late night portion. Uh, what did you know about feral children before I ever brought anything to um, you? I did not know much about feral children. I had heard of Jeannie Wiley's case. Um, I, honestly, I think I've heard. Where did you, where pretty, did you hear that? You, you played something, uh, <laughs> probably in my sleep, probably a while um, ago. Then no, but th- th- I hadn't known much about it until recently, and you started researching it for this, and then I, I've been very curious about it. Uh, a lot of it, it seems like feral children have, have been in history for a very long time, and they've been very reminiscent in folklore as well, mm. um, and. I don't know. It's, it's 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 really interesting. I hate the term feral children, though. Like, I really don't like that, and I think it sounds like super disrespectful to these cases because it just like it's either they're either called feral children or wild child. You know, it's always something like that kind of attached to there instead of like baby neglected child or abused child. You know, so it's it's I don't know. It, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Go. <laughs> I wanted to go back for a second to something you just said though. What? You said, I might have heard it um, while I was sleeping or something like that. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, does anything I ever listen to while I'm going to sleep ever go into your dreams? I have asked you to stop <laughs> listening to true, true crime while I'm sleeping because I will have nightmares. 
I will I will play it out in my head while you're while I'm sleeping if you're listening to stuff like that. I try to turn it down. I try to like I, I listen to I just I'm, now it's ninety day fiance stuff. It's ninety day fiance you, never I That's know. still you, a nightmare. Do you ever have a nightmare about ninety day yes. fiance? <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> um, he has started he doesn't like listening to anything. He just wants to put on the fan the whole time we're sleeping. And so um I I but recently you have started listening to this weird TikTok ASMR and so It'll just be like, oh my god, it's awful, it's awful. I woke up in like a startle one night because I heard... (laughs) Like, freak, I didn't know where it was coming from. I was like half asleep still, looking like throwing blankets over and could not find the phone. It was was awful. So if you are listening to any of my true crime... It started out with like a a woman who she does her own like like energy healing thing. And I really enjoyed it. And then she doesn't do it very often. And but her thing is slightly ASMR. So I started following other ASMR people, and then I started playing them. But apparently they freak, I can't do that. They, they I can't do that. Out. As I'm going but to sleep. but they're, they're always on TikTok around like ten to like two a.m. Mm, I can never do that. No. Uh. Uh-uh. But one one thing I did figure out about feral children that I did not know before starting to research this is that there's three different types feral children who are confined. Mm. Uh, feral ch- children who are isolated away from humans, you know, like they find themselves lost in the woods. And uh, feral ch- ch- uh, children who um, have animalistic qualities because they've been raised by animals or raised with animals. That's primarily like the legend, isn't it? Is that a child who's away from society and is raised by wolves or like monkeys or something like that. A feral child, according to the Wikipedia di- definition. <laughs> a feral child... Also called wild child is a young individual who has lived isolated from human contact from a very young age and so has had little or no experience of human care behavior or human language. Um, so like, yeah, in, in, in stories and folklore and like our imagination and, and anytime we think of something like that, we're thinking, you know, they're being raised by wolves and stuff. But oftentimes it's it, like Mowgli or something, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, um, but oftentimes it really is just t- child neglect. It's, 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 you know, uh, the case that we're covering today is, is it's, 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 it's them being like, I think severed from human connection, really from human society and human connection. And, and yeah. as we all know that, you know, as you're growing up, you have very formative years at the things you learn. Right. And so if you're not learning those things in those years, it does like set you back developmentally um, pretty significantly, especially if you're not having any human contact, if you're not like learning social skills, if you're not learning, if you're not having any stimulation. And the, the case we're talking about today is Jeannie Wiley, one of the most famous cases of like child neglect and the, uh, one of the most famous like feral children, if we want to attach that. Yeah, and, that, term and that's confinement. Oh, yeah. Isolation, animal, animal and uh, it's confinement because she was confined away from humans, you know? Away from humans and yet so close to humans at the same time, yeah. right? Like she was locked. We were watching a movie um, called Mockingbird Don't Sing. It's a movie that was based on the Jeannie Wiley case and... It, wasn't it was good. so bad. It was so it bad. Was, I don't even think we finished the whole the thing. editing? Oh my gosh. I, I was like... It's very like Lifetime movie of the week, but no, it wasn't. Lifetime does much better. <laughs> but I wanted you to like see this, and, and I was hoping that you he gets much more into movies than documentaries, and so I wanted to show him a movie that he would be get, get, he would get really into, and it just wasn't the it wasn't the yeah one we switched to the documentary. But Jeannie Wiley is uh, a person that I heard about a long time ago, probably when I was in high school, 
And I remember seeing her pictures and just like falling in love with her and this sweet little girl and just being like so heartbroken by her story, you know. Um, and the book that we're going to cover today is like by Russ Reimer and pretty much details the whole case. Um, but like there's been cases of like feral children throughout history. And, and, and a lot of times, I, I would say most times I've seen while researching this, child neglect comes in it at some point. Like for for some reason, a lot of these that I've looked up take place in Russia during like a, oh, really? a, 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 around the same uh, time. There was this one kid, Ivan Mushukov, who was a six-year-old boy in Russia who ran away from his parents at four years old. Mm. So he already had some stuff. His, uh, his mother and her boyfriend were alcoholics and abusive, and he ran away, and he started... Uh, Hanging out with uh, wild dogs. Was that a real case, or was that a? It, is that a, like a confirmed it, case, no, or it, was that? It's a case from 1998. Because there have been hoaxes. Um, it, it's a case from 1998, mm. and he would hang out with the wild dogs because they would show him warm places to sleep at the end of the night. And so uh, the way they caught him is he was six years old, and they uh, caught him in his pack with food. And they took him in, but he was like barking. He didn't verbalize stuff like that. But because it was only two years, he was eventually able to verbalize, go to school normally, and now he serves in the Russian army. Oh gosh, I just realized he serves in the Russian army. Oh goodness. Oh, we're not talking about that right now. That's not. <laughs> yeah. That's not the agenda today. But good for him yeah. to be able to move on to move you know? on from that as much as he could. Absolutely, yeah. because like, um, you, you know, there. I remember. Oh goodness, when was this? 2005 maybe i remember my mom used to have a oprah on all the time right and so i uh, i i pretty much anything i would watch that she was watching i fell in love with so general hospital oprah um any daytime tv and so i remember watching oprah one one day after school and they had they were highlighting this case of this girl named danny it was she was also called the girl in the window um and i guess neighbors had seen this little girl in the window uh, and she looked like she looked like underfed, like she looked like something was Maciated. wrong. Uh, yes, and it was this really run down, dirty house, and somebody called like the the police, and and the police showed up, and when they went in there, and they so they went to the back room, they said the house was the house was filthy. There were cockroaches everywhere. There were uh, trash everywhere, and they went to this back room, and there was this little girl, like in the corner, just like you know huddled up, and and when she saw them, she got up. And like they they describe it, I don't even know. I can't I can't even picture this in my mind. And they describe it as a crab walk over to another corner. I can't even like picture that in my mind. What a crab walk would look like. But um, she was six years old, and so for the first six years of her life, she'd been like kept in isolated in this house, never allowed to like have any interaction with the outside world. And not only that, and this was like the worst part of it, is that the mother just didn't do anything with her. The mother had her, left her there, and when she, you know, gets older and starts moving, she just starts doing her own thing, and the mother, like, doesn't change her diaper for, like, weeks on end or, you know, all of these, this this extreme neglect, you know? The mother doesn't teach her how to speak. The mother doesn't teach her, like, anything, nothing. And so she grows up isolated in this house, not learning anything from the one person that is in this house with her, and she, I mean, I guess would be called and considered a feral child or a wild child um she did get put into uh, a foster home and eventually adopted by this 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 family um 
who did take care of her and, and raised her and they they have continued to raise her i think they i think the couple who adopted her eventually got divorced, divorced but there was an article not too well, long ago because she didn't trust female figures well, that's not why they got divorced. Well, no, 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 no. But one reason she wasn't close to her adopted mother is that yeah, she didn't trust she didn't female tr- figures. Because of her mother. Because yeah. of her mother. And her mother yeah. didn't even like realize that she like did anything wrong or she denied that she ever did anything wrong. Um, and the, yeah, there was an article a little bit, a little bit ago. That's another case I've tried to keep up with because I really want to keep up with Danny's story and how she's doing. And she lives in a, a group home right now. She seems to be doing really well. The, she's the going to college, was, isn't she? No. no. She's, she's. Oh, she graduated de- high school. She's, she's very de- school, developmentally. Um, she never, she never got on track with developmental milestones. She's uh, developmentally challenged still, and so she lives in a group home, which is being taken care of. And her dad comes and visits her. And the article is about her dad coming to visit her for her birthday and taking her out to buy a toy. You know, so it's a very sad story. But we're going to be covering Jeannie Wiley today, and that's one. It's an even sadder story. So if, if you're not into a sad story today, then I mean, I mean, I mean they're they're all very sad. Yeah, I just found out about the Austrian story of uh, the the man who kept his daughter locked up. That's not a feral child, though. No, but she did have two children that were considered that. Yeah. This is another, yeah. another story for another day, though. We're we're not talking about that. But I don't I don't know. I was just traumatized by that. Okay. Now it's time to tell y'all a little bit about our sponsor for today's episode, Helix Sleep. Helix is a premium mattress and a box company that makes beds to fit your unique sleep style. Big thank you to Helix Sleep for sponsoring today's episode of Coffee and Tequila. Uh, we've had our mattress how long? Two years we've been having. We've had Helix mattresses. Two years. Starting two years. It's, two. It's, re- oh my gosh. I'm. Not, I'm. I hate to break it. We got a mattress the other day. Yeah, uh, it was yeah. <laughs> a freaking amazing. We took a. What three hour nap in the middle of the day? As it soon was, as we got the mattress wild, in the house, man. So we we got some partial like a partial delivery of our things to this apartment because we're in an apartment for, for about six months, and we have been sleeping on the floor and it's been awful. We've, and before we were sleeping on the floor, we were sleeping on my parents' mattress at, at my mom's house, and which is not just not the greatest. <laughs> I'm sorry, mama. <laughs> but we finally got our Helix mattress back, and it was just uh, we both laid down on it, and we were we had so many things to do that day. We just fell asleep and it woke was, up like three hours later. And, honestly, it was amazing. It was, it was it's like fantastic heaven. nap, and even still right now like it's my favorite place in this apartment i'm not gonna lie it's my favorite place in this apartment helix knows that everybody is different and everybody has their own unique needs and so they've made a sleep quiz that'll match you with your perfect mattress based on your needs i am an all-over sleeper alistair is more of a side sleeper he likes a firm mattress i like uh you know more medium we took the quiz together and we got the Midnight Mattress, and that mattress, let me tell you, is something. And one of the best parts about Helix is that they deliver the mattress right to your door for free. It comes rolled up in a box and is super easy to set up yourself. And if it makes you nervous to buy something online that you haven't tried, Helix has a 100 night sleep trial, so you get more than 3 months to make sure that you absolutely love it. And if you don't, they'll pick it up for you and you'll get a full refund. If you or somebody you know is in need of a new mattress and you think Helix is something that sounds right for you, you can go to helixsleep.com slash tequila. Got a new, we got a new, we got a new new one. Helix.com slash tequila. And and you can get up to $200 off of your mattress and two free pillows. The primary source that we're going to be using today is Genius Scientific Tragedy. It's a book by Russ Reimer. The book is actually like, so the, the team of scientists and doctors involved in Genie's case pretty much shit on this book <laughs> really? so they don't they don't like it and the any articles that he wrote they didn't like any of those either but this is like the book that i have found the most comprehensive 
to tell this story and it's he he wasn't really involved with any of the doctors or anything so it i don't know it's what's it, his relation to the story do you know he doesn't i don't really i don't think he had a really a relation to he the just story. wanted to write about just, it i think he just wrote about it yeah so i thought that would be a good one there's also a dissertation by um, one of the with the, one of the linguists involved in the uh in the case um susan curtis so I'll reference that a couple of times and then the Wikipedia page for anything that anything that like <laughs> that got my simple mindedness triggered and I couldn't like I needed it simplified. I went to the Wikipedia page and just like took whatever was simplified there. But primarily I'm using this book here. But there's a whole damn book to find this. <laughs> and just so, so you'll know, he did a deep dive into this. I did not. I so did it, did I will be asking questions. <laughs> this is the interview right now. <laughs> I did research on feral child. Uh, children, but 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 not anything specific for Ginny Wiley. Yeah, it's okay. I'll leave this one. So Ginny's mother, Irene, was born. And do you want to guess where she was born? Texas. Alta's Oklahoma. No. <laughs> Ginny's mother, Irene Wiley, was born in Alta's Oklahoma. She was raised by two sets of parents, basically her normal parents, and then she had um, a mamaw and a dada. It was just so, another set of parents who basically raised her father. Uh, yeah. And it seems like, from all accounts, from everything that I could find, it's like really hard. You know, it's really hard finding um, a whole like family biography that goes back way back then, it, especially to Altus, Oklahoma. I'm sure there's not a lot of family trees being kept. I mean, I tried to look up the father, and that yeah. like took me nowhere. Hardly anywhere, yeah. There's not a lot of documents going back that far. Um, but it seems like she had a pretty like okay home life, right? Like her dad had a really good job, and they there's one story that she remembers that she they were they were working outside or they were doing something and they saw men going by with um with some pails with some like little buckets and she was like well where are they going and they were going to the soup kitchen and so her mom had to explain to her that they were lucky enough not to have to go to the soup kitchen um and so, but she wasn't really close to her mother either so i guess that that kind of plays into her own relationship with her own daughter a little bit generational later. trauma yeah maybe i don't know she's she says her mother was a little bit stern and unloving which it's very of the time right like parents like feelings you have a feel what is know, like, what is that that seems very altus oklahoma it does feel very altus oklahoma yeah. <laughs> um, so when she was a child though so the handle of a, a, a ring washer a ringer washer you know what that is I do not know. Okay, what that so you is. put the clothes clothes in, and it's uh, <laughs> it's like a really old way to wash clothes. And they like so they just they crank it, crank like it, a... and the and it goes through the little like it's one of those boxes. I think you have it in your up. head. I do think you have it in your head. Anyway, the handle of that hit her in the head, and that is like partially a cause for part of her blindness. She also had cataracts that uh, that developed over time. So basically, she was ninety percent blind in her left eye, totally blind in her right eye. Um, oh, I didn't know that, but I, I know it was exacerbated by mm-hmm. her later husband. Oh, yeah, because of all the beatings and stuff yeah. like that. Well, so she, her family did leave Oklahoma at one point um, because the drought came through. There was a big drought in Oklahoma. This is very on point. <laughs> that tracks. Um, there was a drought in Oklahoma, so they left Oklahoma for California looking for this big grand so life. It's that's the just it now. It's just what people do. Uh, no, and everybody's leaving California now. But like back in the day, you know, people were going to California they to, you know, get their life up. But they, they never really their earnings were all in California. In Oklahoma they sustained a pretty nice life. It wasn't they weren't rich or anything, but they were okay. And in California their means were just like very, very limited. They were definitely living paycheck to paycheck. Um parents were working very hard. You know, they they had they had to work. 
Um, so Irene was in her early 20s when she met Clark Wiley. Uh, Clark was 20 years older than her, and she was working that's at a crazy. Dr- yeah, yeah. I didn't. I that's that was one of the. So I read this case so many times that I didn't realize how old Clark Wiley was, and that I just saw a picture of him for the first time like a week ago, and I was so surprised at how old he was because that's not how I pictured him in, in, in your my head. mind. Yeah. Um, but Irene was in her early 20s when she met him. She was working at a drugstore, and he would come in to talk about horse racing with, uh, with the pharmacist. And so eventually him and Irene started talking, and they struck up their relationship. They started going steady. Fell in love. They went steady. Um, Clark pretty much grew, grew up in foster homes because his mother – Ran a brothel, and his father was nowhere to be found. Um, he didn't have much formal schooling either, but he, apparently he was really, really good at math. And so that skill led him to be, becoming a machinist, and he worked in the aircraft industry. So he got a, a pretty good job, yeah, because he was just really good at math. Didn't have to have the schooling for it. I, I remember reading that he didn't have a good relationship with his mother for a long yeah. time because she was absent. But then something happened, and uh, he, he became almost obsessive with his mother. I didn't see that anything happened, but he was very, very devoted to his mother. I didn't see any event that happened, but it seems that in his adult years and his mother kind of would go back into his life trying to, I don't know, make amends, I guess, and trying to make a better mother being so absent, but maybe that, that was it is that once he got attention from her, Probably, you but know, he was very something devoted. that he really, really craved. He was very devoted to her, and she could do no wrong. They would argue all the time, but like she could do no wrong. Um, and she spent a lot of her time, like she spent a lot of her money, like supporting him in his adult years until he got the machinist job. And then um, when he met Irene and they started having kids, um, she was always over there, like taking, helping to take care of things, clean the house. Irene even said that her mother-in-law was a nuisance because she was always over there. So she was, she was. Definitely trying to be a positive influence in their lives. Irene has said that Clark was very overprotective and that he was very controlling during the relationship. I, we're already leading there, right? Um, and she said that her life ended basically on her wedding day. Who hasn't said that on their wedding day, right? Shut up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, don't say that. No, it's awful, though. Really, it is awful for her. Like, she was young, like 20-something, but when she married him, early 20s, and she's saying, like, this was the worst day of her life and this pretty much ended her life, that's insane um so from here it only got worse and worse either so uh, irene pretty much came from a confining life and she just went right back into one you know um she's in the land of promise california she could have been a star she was in los angeles they were living in los angeles this is where you know you go to be a movie star and you have big dreams and her dreams are just cut done um clark do we, do we know what her dreams were I have not seen that. No, she's she's she seems like she was a really private woman uh but clark did demand that they did not have any children um he did not want any kids he was very adamant he did not want any children and she became pregnant because they're probably not using protection right they're probably not using protection they're probably not trying not to have kids he's just like woman you don't you don't get pregnant you don't get pregnant woman it's it's, It's it's, it's your problem it's your problem (laughs) you don't get pregnant that's a you thing um now we know it's two people think (laughs) (laughs) uh late in the first pregnancy though like clark beat irene like within inches of her life she went to the hospital and it was so lucky that she ended up giving birth to uh, or maybe unlucky that she ended up giving birth to a daughter like daughter came out she was she hadn't been injured in this beating um but not so lucky because 
they bring this baby home. The baby's yeah. crying, and Clark could not stand the crying. He he hated it. One of the reasons he didn't want kids is because they were noisy. He did not like noise. This is like a thing that keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. He had this weird aversion to noise, and babies cry, and so he took the baby. Odd aversion to noise. Yeah, yeah. He, I couldn't see if he, either he took the baby or she or Irene took the baby because Irene was always trying to just settle his temper right so i couldn't figure out which one did it i read that he did but either way it's from his actions one of them put the baby in the garage to keep them from hearing the noise of crying and the baby obviously died got Um, pneumonia right yeah the baby got pneumonia is what is what irene said and it's pretty much the baby died of exposure because it was put out in the garage it was probably cold um and the baby was two months old at this time which i feel like is such a Red flag right there for any services. Well, they keep having kids. They keep having kids. This was this should have been there. This should have been her her reason to go. She should have been out of there. Um, yeah. But I mean, you know, people stay in these sorts of relationships for for they get trapped. They, they get trapped and they don't know how to leave. But this would have had been her perfect opportunity. She'd have gone off. She'd have lived a life. Um, the next baby also died, but it died from Rh blood poisoning. So this is basically nature now, basically saying you two do not have children. Do not have children. Um, so Rh blood poisoning is apparently when the mother has Rh negative blood and the fetus has Rh positive. Um, so mm. even nature saying they shouldn't have kids. So the baby died, and then they had a third job. And this is the one you were talking about. This is John. John miraculously lived through infancy, made it all the way into old age. He he lived. He had a, he had he lived. He had a life. But he had a lot of trauma. He oh of course this is the, so we talk a lot about Jeannie. And her trauma, um, and John Wiley is often very much forgotten in this case. And I, I, I read while I was obsessing over it when you were showing mm-hmm. me the movies and everything. I, I read an article of his where you know he's off, um, like mm-hmm. in his older age, and he's like, "Yeah, people just forgot about me, and I just wanted to get away from everything." But I had a lot of trauma as a kid. Yeah, you know, I was beaten. Uh, his dad would beat his testicles. Well, we're getting there. We're oh, getting am, there. I, am I <laughs> stepping on your he's toes? Trying to, he's trying to give it. He, he read the Wikipedia. He's speeding through the Wikipedia. <laughs> I did not. I read, I read the book. I'm going to tell you what the book is, what's <laughs> happening in the book. So he suffered a lot of neglect growing up, like in his early years. So he nearly was a feral child, became feral child. I want a new name for it. We should have come up with a new name for it because I hate calling them feral children. Um, neglected child. He was very neglected when he was growing up, and he started developing slower than than normal. He wasn't hitting those milestones that you should be hitting, and it was getting so bad that Clark's mother came in, Grandma 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 Wiley. I couldn't find her name. She came in and she took the child in with her, and the child pretty much lived with her for a little while. Um, and as soon as the child started living with her, he started getting back. On track, on track, yeah, and developing normally and hitting those milestones that he was supposed to hit. Irene gave birth to their fourth child, April 1957. A couple, like, he did not want to have kids, and they had four freaking kids, man. Um, and this Two was, of which have already passed. This is Jeannie. Yes, by now, both of those kids had passed. John is living, and then we have Jeannie, who was born in April 1957. Um, and Jeannie was also born with RH blood poisoning, but had a medical intervention, and she was saved. Um and she was taken into this house and also neglected. Guess what? Of course she was neglected. She was not going to – they were not going to start giving her all of the, the treatment they didn't give any of the other kids, right? They've set a pattern now. Uh, in 1958, Clark's mother was taking John to get ice cream. 
This was this is like what completely set Clark off. So already, I think that Clark had a lot of issues mentally. Mm-hmm. I think he had something. Something was there undiagnosed, like sitting and bubbling beneath the surface, and it was going to blow at any time. And it only took this event for it to happen. So Clark's mother was taking their son John, um, um, his son John, to get ice cream, and a car hit her. And right in front of John, he was watching as his grandmother gets hit by a car, and the car just drags her oh body down the street and he's watching this and it turns out it was a drunk driver drunk driver did it and um the he did get arrested he got charged but he got away with probation so really no consequence and this sent clark into a tailspin he could not handle this really if you think about it clark gets a worse sentence clark gets a worse sentence yeah what because the uh, the drunk driver Gets away. Oh, yeah. Clark absolutely. has to go back to that But family. Clark's a monster, so I'm not giving any sympathy to Clark. Sorry about it. Wait, which one? Clark, the father. Oh, sorry. No, the John. John. John, John. John gets a worse sentence. He's, we, we have a Clark sympathizer over here. <laughs> no, we don't. No, we don't. But John gets a worse sentence, you know? Well, they all do. All three of them do. Um, Jeannie, Irene, and, and John, you know? Clark was just, by all accounts, overcome by his fury at the injustice he feels like the world completely like turned his back on them and and didn't give any justice to his dead mother so he was very depressed but this depression like went way beyond grief and he was getting to the point of like pure madness uh clark quit his job moved his family into his mother's home it's this little yellow house have you seen the house yeah you showed yeah, me that very tiny house very little like california home um it's yellow Two bedrooms. Two bedrooms. So the, the house had two bedrooms, and the house was in Temple City, California. And he kept his mother's room exactly as she had it, and he didn't allow anybody in his mother's room. Nobody could go in there. Um, so that's one of the two bedrooms, just completely Why? blocked off, and nobody can go in there because it was a shrine to her. This was his shrine to his mother. He was had this, you know, deep devotion to her, and so he's going to keep it completely pristine. I, I am the type of person who – I'm not Clark, but I am the type <laughs> yeah. of person who will – keep things pristine if i'm going through grief so when we lost our animals or when i i remember when my first experience with death was ever was my granny um and when she died i went to her house and i was going through things and taking some stuff and put them in my suitcase and i kept that stuff i kept a a stack of post-its that she had had and i would not let those go for the longest time they were post-its she'd never used them they were in plastic they had no meaning to her but they were hers so i was like I kind of kept shrines like that, so I get that. He kept this whole room as a shrine to her. Um, Clark, Irene, and John would all sleep in the living room. So all three of them would sleep in the living room, and this was because Clark would sleep in an easy chair. Uh, Irene and John would sleep on the floor. And Irene sometimes stated that uh, Clark would sleep with a gun in his his lap. So by this point, Clark is already abusive. We already know Clark is abusive. and now He beats his wife. He beats his kids. And now he's just like mad he's just crazy and is sleeping with a gun in his lap and like obviously they're scared to leave irene is scared to do anything um and then the second bedroom went to genie but it's not in a nice little girl gets her own room kind of way this room had a a baby's crib in it and it had a potty chair and this basically became genie's prison cell for the next 13 years um so she was not allowed out. Clark hated the world for the injustice to his mother. He wanted to keep his family. He, his reasoning was that he wanted to keep his family away from the world that he thought um, would harm them. Really? I, yeah, because I was looking that up. Yeah. 
He saw himself as their protector and that he had to protect them at all costs. Because in the movie, I remember Irene being like, you told me that we could take her to a doctor after uh, if she when survives. She, when she survives to, if she survives to 12, that we'll take her to the doctor. Yeah. Clark believed. So uh, th- there was one point, I think when Jeannie was like two, that she went to the doctor and they remarked that she might be slow. You know, she might. Probably developmentally slow probably, because of how he, they're raising. Most likely that, her. right? Um, I think that's been a big question in the case throughout the whole case is like, was she already slow just naturally or was her environment, did her environment make her slow? Nature nurture. Yeah. Nature nurture. There you go. Um, and so she was about two and the doctor told him that, and he went into a tailspin and he said, the world is going to completely just abuse her and use her and she's not safe in the world. And so he locked her away in this bedroom. He said that she's slow. Um, the R word is, Used a lot in this in this yes. book. So it's oh, it's it's used a lot in the documentary too. Like, yeah. like it's so weird to see just like actual mm-hmm. like licensed therapists and psychologists like use our word very crazy, so yeah. willy nilly too. Um, but Jeannie, so he he believed that Jeannie was not going to live past twelve years old. He said she's not going to live past twelve, so we're going to put her in the room. Nobody's allowed to have contact with her. The mom can only go in there really in short spurts to go and feed her real quick or or. You know, he really pretty much had charge over it. Nobody was really allowed to see her. She was supposed to be cut off from everybody because if she didn't live, if she if she didn't live past twelve, they don't. He didn't want anybody getting attached to her. He didn't want anything. How fucking sad! Like, cut her off it's, because she was slow and because he didn't want anybody to get attached to her. And she, everybody suffers because of this. This is an excerpt from Susan Curtis's doctoral dissertation describing the conditions Jeannie was kept in. I figured I'd just like read verbatim just so that. Yeah, I'll get exactly what the conditions were here. In the house, Jeannie was confined to a small bedroom harnessed in an infant's potty seat. Jeannie's father sewed the harness himself, unclad except for the harness. Jeannie was left to sit in that chair, unable to move anything but her fingers and hands, feet and toes. Jeannie was left to sit, tied up, hour after hour, often into the night, day after day, month after month, year after year. At night, when Jeannie was not forgotten, she would be removed from her harness only to be placed in another restraining garment, a sleeping bag, which her father had fashioned to hold Jeannie's arms stationary, so I'm guessing down at her sides. Um, In effect, it was a straitjacket. Therein constrained, Jeannie was put into an infant's crib with wire mesh sides and a wire mesh cover overhead. Uh, caged by night, harnessed by day, Jeannie was left to somehow endure the hours and years of her life. Just was, like that's absolute was, torture. It's just the the image, the mental you picture. You have no of stimulus it. at all. Mm-mm. Okay. There was little for her to listen to. There was no TV or radio in the house. The father had an intolerance for noise, so what little conversation there was between family members and the rest of the house was kept at a low volume. Except for moments of anger, when her father swore Jeannie did not hear any language outside her door, and thus received practically no auditory stimulation of any kind. Hungry and forgotten, Jeannie would sometimes attract attention by making noise. Angered, her father would often beat her for doing so. In fact, there was a large piece of wood in the corner of the room, which her father used solely to beat her whenever she made any sound. Jeannie learned to keep silent and to suppress all vocalization. Occasionally, 
two plastic raincoats hung outside the closet in the room, and once in a while, Jenny was allowed to play with them. Two plastic raincoats. She was allowed to play with those occasionally. I'm, I'm assuming very rarely. In addition, Jenny was sometimes given partly edited copies of the TV log with pictures her father considered too suggestive removed. So these would be like swimsuit models, you know, anything on the TV log that looked like that. She was also given an occasional empty cottage cheese container, empty thread spools, and the like. These were Jenny's toys. And together with the floor, her harness, and her body, they were her primary sources of visual and tactile stimulation. Jenny's diet was equally limited. She was given baby foods, cereals, and occasional soft-boiled egg. Under pressure from the father to keep contact with Jenny to a minimum, she was fed hurriedly, usually by having food just shoved into her mouth. Should Jenny choke or spit out some of her food, she would have her face rubbed in it. Mm. Shove the food in her face, and if she if she happens to like spit it back up, it's, she gets her face rubbed in it. I just, the visual that I get of her just strapped to this chair all day staring at a wall and that that was her life you know and she really never had a chance under this roof that's just so messed up so john or or clark didn't only abuse genie he also abused irene and john pretty heavy also like uh, nobody's surprised Uh, irene was blind so she couldn't really do anything on her own she couldn't even dial the phone to phone for help so she just lived in this house and just didn't because i guess that's always a question is like why doesn't an abuse victim leave right how's she gonna leave how's she gonna take two kids and just leave it's not only being blind it's also being financially reliant on somebody else right yes and i mean you i I've, i've seen a lot of women who stay in a relationship because they cannot yeah. financially leave because they do not control the money. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, her parents did live in the area. They lived like 10 miles away. Her parents? Yeah, they lived in and Los her, Angeles. And her parents didn't want to I guess her parents didn't see her all that much. That's what is confusing to me is like, did her parents not see her in this entire time? I don't believe that. I think her parents probably did see her. Did the parents not question what, like, what was going on? Maybe with they didn't question it. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they didn't see her in the house. Maybe, I don't know. Something was off. Something was obviously off, but it's just there's too many factors for me to think that there weren't chances for her to get away, for somebody to come in and help her maybe. Um, And I think there were some failings on other people as well. Uh, So Clark pretty much kept them isolated in the house day in and day out. John was allowed to leave to go to school and sometimes to play with the neighborhood kids. Um, But at one point, John hit puberty. Um, this is what you were kind of talking about earlier. Clark yeah. tied him to a chair and beat his testicles with a wooden board because Clark did not wanting, want John having children in the future. Um, yeah. Fucking sick. Fucking sick. And it was all under the name of, like, he wanted to protect his family, right? This is such bullshit, man. Mm. Um, from interviews, it seems that John was a little bit disappointed, you know, going forward after all the press attention that he was kind of forgotten. Um he was the well, forgotten he, abused he, child that Clark. He escaped as soon as he could. Yeah. You know, he, he escaped as soon as all that stuff happened. One of the quotes that John gave was, I was left out in a field and no one came to my rescue. I am a living dead man. So he carried this, he carried his own trauma into his adult life. And I would be curious to see how that, how that um, manifested into his life. 
So let's go into the escape, right? This is awful home life. Jeannie stays there for 13 years. And remember that Clark thought that Jeannie was going to die before 12 years old. And he told Irene that if she makes it to 12 years old, you can go get her help. I will allow you to go get her help. 12 came and went. Did not happen. He, he completely went back on that. He said, no, you're not going to do that. Um, so obviously he lied about it. Uh, when Jeannie was 13. Do you think at this point he's like, he knows? He's like so stirred in his madness. This is a crazy man. This is not a, this is, this is not a sane You don't person. think he's doing it to protect himself at this point? This is not. Oh, most likely. Most likely. But I do think he was like absolutely insane. He had to have been. So when Jeannie's 13, Irene and Clark get into this really, really big fight. It's a very violent fight. And Irene is demanding that Clark call her parents for her. She's like, call my parents, do it, or I'm going to leave you. Um, Because she can't do it herself. She can't call her parents herself. Um, Finally, he gives it, and he calls, and her... I'm guessing her parents come and get her is what I I took from this. Um, But Irene takes Jeannie and leaves. By this time, John is already 18 years old, so he's already out of the house. He just decides not to ever go home. He just never goes home. Um, The movie plays that differently. (laughs) Yeah. It was like he went out for like food or something, and she she told John, "I need to escape, you know, distract yeah, him." That's the thing about like a story like this being like told over years and years and years is some things get changed, and so yeah. what I read is that John just doesn't go back home, you know. Um, but Irene takes Jeannie and she leaves, and uh, Irene lived with her parents for about three weeks. And she has just come out of this really tra- traumatic situation. She has this child who. This 13-year-old girl who is acting like a she one, must have the mind of, like, less than a one-year-old, right? Her mind must be developed less than a one-year-old. And this is the crazy part. This is freaking wild to me. So one day, Irene goes to find the office for the services for the blind, right? Because remember, she's, like, 90% blind in the left eye, right eye totally blind. So she goes to look for the services for the blind. She's holding mm-hmm. her mom in one hand and, like, Jeannie in another, and she... Wanders not into the services for the blind office. She wanders into social services office. So the social services people see her and see this child that's with her. And they start asking questions because she, this, this child is, I think what it was described by some of the workers there is that Jeannie was standing with her arms outstretched, almost like she was holding a rail um, or like a banister. So Jeannie looks like a girl who's like six years old, right? Um, Jeannie is 13 years old, and so these people are asking questions, and they initially think that Jeannie has autism, but it's undiagnosed, and they're asking questions to Irene, and they're getting answers that, like, maybe Irene doesn't know that Jeannie is autistic, and they, they go back and get, like, the supervisor, and he's going to come out, and they start asking more questions, and they figure out that Jeannie is 13 years old, and so then it goes from an, a girl who may be autistic to... She looks abused. She's emaciated. Mm-hmm. She looks like she's been starved. She is just not this something not right here. They don't take her at this point. Irene does get to go home. But, really? Yeah, but social service because I mean, like I, I don't know. I don't know. I I would assume that you could take her at that point, but I would not. I don't know how social social services work. I feel like immediately take that child into custody right yeah. now. Um, but they do. So they're not – she's not taken by social services then and there, but they do visit Irene at their house, at her mom's house, and they convince Irene that Jeannie needs help. And so they take Jeannie to the hospital. They take Irene to the hospital as well, Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, and uh, they start piecing together of Jeannie's actual, like, 
state. They're they're piecing together not not so much the background. This doesn't happen. The one thing that's really weird about this is Jeannie's background does not get revealed until like years later and across many years. Um, it never gets really revealed at once because I think Irene is like hiding a lot of this. Um, so what we know is something that they don't know. All they're able to start piecing together is that uh, Jeannie is starved. Jeannie is neglected. Jeannie is 13 years old and looks like a six-year-old. That ain't right. So Clark and Irene are arrested. They're arrested and charged with child abuse. And Irene pleads not guilty, um, saying she was basically forced into a role because of her husband's abuse. Um, and her plea is accepted. And she's later released and, and is able to go and get counseling. This is actually because of the doctors. The doctors who end up working with Jeannie do go in and, and they want Irene to remain in Jeannie's life. Um I guess it's some tie to her past. I don't exactly get that and why they would do that, but do you, do you think the what do you think about the not guilty plea? This is weird. This is like I I have sympathy for Irene because it was an, it was an abusive situation. She's literally blind, dude. Like she is blind. She wasn't able to like really defend herself all that much. But I have to imagine that over eighteen years, if we're counting from when John was a baby. She didn't have a chance to do something. I don't know. I don't like going back and saying, well, why didn't she leave? Why didn't she just leave? So I'm giving but, uh, her. Also, the question is still there. Like, yeah. You know, because you, you, no matter what, you have a responsibility as a parent. Yeah. But I know? do think, what I do think, and it is mentioned kind of in the book, is that she probably would have remained in that marriage and in that house had she not had kids. I do think it was her kids that kind of, or at least Jeannie, that kind of spurred her into leaving. That she needed to get out of there, right? Especially after twelve comes and goes, and she's not allowed to get help for Jeannie. I mean, some people love misery. Yeah, I mean, they, they, that's uh, some things, and I, I know people in life yeah. that just I feel like prefer to be miserable than anything else. Well, I give Irene a lot of a lot of leeway here, right? I mean, I guess it's my responsibility to give her the leeway. I gotta, I gotta give her the pass. You were blessed. Um, um, I, 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 I don't know. I no, I, I look on it as like you know. You were in an abusive situation yourself, and you, you, you did eventually get her out. Okay. I have a lot of problems. I do not like Irene. Fuck Irene. I do have problems with her later on, but here, give her a little bit of a pass here. Um, Clark was supposed to be at that hearing, and he did not show up because that morning that he was supposed to show up, he killed himself in the house, and his son was – I think his son was even outside, you know, hanging out with some neighbor kids, and he left uh, – a note. Yeah. He wanted to be hidden. So the thing with Clark, right, is that he wanted his family hidden away from the world, and all of a sudden they're, like, in the public eye. They're in the spotlight, you know. Um, there's photographers carrying. You can you can look basically paparazzi photos that we would think of, like, the 2000s. We're seeing those back then, you know. Um, yeah. All these photographers hounding this couple, this Irene and Clark, about this – this, the worst case of child abuse that the doctors have ever seen. You know, that is not what Clark Wiley wanted. Um, so he killed himself. He shot himself, and he left. He left a couple notes. He left one note for his son with $400 saying, uh, don't take that shirt back. It's for my funeral. You know where my blue shirt is. Underwear in the hall closet. I love you. Goodbye and be good. And the other one um, for the police saying, my son is outside. Um, and then one basically that seems like it's for the public and says the world will never understand. Not shit for Irene and Jeannie. Nothing for them. Nothing for them. He doesn't leave them no money. He doesn't leave them nothing. Um, he does leave his estate. He does have an estate. Not even an apology. Nothing. Nothing. He doesn't think he did anything wrong. He died. This is a man who died believing he did the right thing. Um, 
or at least in his mind, or at least what what he admitted to the public is that he thinks he was doing the right thing. Whether that was in his mind as in his final moments that he knew he did did wrong, we will never know. But um, basically left $400 for, for John, and then he did leave the house, and so the house was part of his estate, and the house was about $20,000. I don't know what that is in, in today's money. About $20,000. Um, and that was decided by the state to be split up three ways between Jeannie, Irene, and John. I think $20,000 was maybe, because we just watched Miss Maisel. I think it was around one hundred and twenty. Maybe $1,000. I know it was at least above $100,000. $20,000 in... Well, this is 1970. Like, oh, yeah, 1970. Like never mind. No, I, was, I, I was still thinking 1957. It's, it's around that time. So it's about $146,000 for that house. Ooh, it's see, the, it's the value close, of the house, but close. it's not money. This is not like money. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is the house. This is the value of the house. So it's like split three ways by the state. Um, but like, you know, John never sees that. John basically takes that $400 and gets the hell out of California. He, he He's done. He... As soon as possible, get out of there. Yeah, because he did feel like his mom was getting giving Jeannie all of the attention at this point, right? Like yeah. He was, she was visiting Jeannie all the time. He was seeing everything that was happening with Jeannie, the, all the press situation around this, and everybody's talking about Jeannie as the abused child, not really giving. He was suffering from neglect too, you know? Yeah. Like, and he wasn't, he must have just been fucking spiraling, and where was the help for him, you know? He wasn't getting any help. Everybody, so. which is interesting because you see this, you know, this one case, you would, I would think that you would typically also look at the siblings, right? Yeah. And I understand that he's 18 and therefore maybe not under the purview of, of social services, but I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily right. You know, it's just, he obviously couldn't take the pressure of it. So he took that $400 and left California and did not come back. Um, he saw Jeannie and his mom, maybe one other time, a couple, maybe a couple times since then but he pretty much left and, and started his own life um so basically how did years of uh isolation and neglect affect genie is my big uh, question in this in this <laughs> in this section um her mental age was that of a 13 month old her fine motor skills were about the age of a two-year-old genie was incontinent couldn't chew solid food couldn't really swallow she was constantly drooling uh, she didn't show any emotion at all she was completely emotionless she did not express anything um and she had a ring of callus around her buttocks uh, from sitting mm. in that fucking chair and from being beat right um and she hadn't this is this was the craziest part she had nearly two complete sets of teeth because i guess she wasn't losing baby teeth what like shark like rose that's what i'm like picturing in my mind is but i'm guessing she just didn't lose her baby teeth and so her adult teeth grew in either over them or behind them um, her bone aged matched an 11-year-old's. Her eyesight was fine, but she couldn't focus them on anything more than 10 feet away because the bedroom was about 10 feet, right? So that was the dimension of the room she was in. Uh, she couldn't stand up or straighten any of her limbs. She had a bunny walk. I'm going to send you this bunny walk. Um, this is what the doctors described as a bunny walk. Was it this one? Yeah. Yeah, you sent it to yeah. me. So that was pretty much how she walked. Um, later on in, in the Rymer book, it does say that um, I think Curtis describes it as her moving very slowly as if she's moving through water all the time. She was very, very antisocial, obviously, um, but that seemed to be more when she had to have close contact with others. So she would walk up to strangers. This is over time, obviously, too, right? This is not just initially. We're talking about a little bit of time passing. She's in the hospital being taken care of. And she does walk up to strangers, but she doesn't like physical touch. Um, and she doesn't seem to be able to differentiate people. So she 
like would look at you and me or like any, any, even her mother, she doesn't, she didn't seem to be able to differentiate her mother from anybody else. I thought that was really interesting also. Um, she really liked to explore her surroundings, but always seemed more interested in objects than people. Um, because she doesn't interact with people. She doesn't she only interact with people, and she loves objects. Have that like cottage cheese, like canister. As or we go it was. forward, we learn that she absolutely adores containers and plastic pails and containers and buckets and all of that. She's like in love with all of those things. Um, so she's prompted to sit on her mom's lap one time, right in the hospital, and she's like very stiff and she wants to uncomfortable and she wants to get up really quick. So she like does not like the physical touch. She doesn't like the physical intimacy or anything. Because the only physical like stuff that. she's ever experienced is violence. Yeah. So she doesn't really talk, but she is able to understand certain words, and a few of them are red, blue, green, brown, mother, walk and go, door, jewelry box. <laughs> I, who was at her room saying jewelry box a thousand I times? Know I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> Bunny. Um, and she could say, stop it and no more as like one word. Or not like each of those. Stop it would be one word and no more would be one word. So I'm guessing that's something she heard pretty often and she was able to say. Um, uh, disturbing part, she also masturbated openly and she would try to engage men in that. Um that usually points to sexual abuse. Uh, Jeannie's case obviously attracted a significant amount of press attention, but also the attention of scientists. Because here, listen, here's this girl who literally... It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for study. They are seeing her as this opportunity for study. This is this girl who was literally isolated away from the rest of the world. This is like prime... Because yeah. you can't morally make these conditions. You cannot. You cannot yeah. morally make these conditions. So when somebody comes up with these conditions already, then it's an opportunity for scientific research. Mm -hmm. So basically there's a hypothesis out there that there's a very specific periods of a person's life when you're able to hit certain developmental milestones. We all know this by now. Um, uh, and one of those milestones is, is learning a first language, being able to speak and learn a first language. I guess the Chomsky, <laughs> Chomsky? Uh, theory is that you cannot learn that language after you hit puberty, puberty. and puberty is like it and if after that you're not going to be able to learn a first language um so but had she physically reached puberty because like sometimes with malnutrition well that's i don't think she had i like, don't think at this point when she's 13 years old and in the hospital i don't think she has hit puberty yeah. or it's been stunted at some uh, point. because i know um uh women girls reach puberty um before uh, men do before boys do mm -hmm. but also with when you're not having the nutrition and all that stuff that that might change stuff i don't know yeah. i don't know how how it would be that a chemical imbalance or your the chemistry in your body changing means that you for some reason can't you know take in some sort of language you're just one of the lucky ones you learn two languages well, well that's that's the thing which is very interesting in the u.s because in the u.s they don't teach you a second language until you're in high school and that's way too late to be teaching uh, a language pe pe people pe learn it though people you can you can but it's not as easy mm. as you as when you're a kid i mean there's a reason why it's easier when you're a kid to learn two three languages yeah so basically genie is this like the holy grail of like test subjects right and and research studies and so every tom dick and harry is trying to get in on this and they all want to like be part of this team that is being put together to study genie um 
it's really ridiculous. The book basically mentions that everybody's clamoring to study her. They're they're all fighting each other. They're all trying to get in. It's like even randoms are trying to. Susan Curtis is one of the ones that we're going to be hearing about most often. Um, she is a 26-year-old linguist, very interested in studying Jeannie's language development. Um, James Kent is another important one. He's a psychologist that is given access to Jeannie pretty early on. Um, and so at the time, this is where James Kent is kind of like a shining star. At the time, child abuse is just coming into public consciousness, right? So Kent was very, very important in providing Jeannie therapy and watching and documenting her project progress. The, I, I noticed that the main ones who like have the biggest impact in Jeannie, Jeannie's, <laughs> Jeannie's life. It's good. The name is going to change each time. I know. Uh, very important in. <laughs> it's in my mind now. In Jeannie, I've Jeannie learned, not Jeannie. Part of my language now. <laughs> Jeannie, Jeannie, Jeannie. Um, are the ones who are, like, basically observing her mostly, right? There's one time that James Kent pulls out a puppet. He's going to use this puppet on her. And he pulls out the puppet, and puppets are already terrifying. I don't I don't blame her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she is she's terrified of it. She grabs the puppet off of his hand. She throws it to the floor. And he's like, well, we have to get him back. He thinks it's a little curious. He's like, we have to get him back. And Jeannie repeated after him, and she says, back. She says, back. And she started laughing, but it's like this really nervous, uncomfortable laugh. Um, so Kent picked up the puppet. And and they repeated this a couple of times, and each time she would she would continue to laugh um, as she was able to like throw it to the ground. So Kent noted that Jeannie would primarily do one of two things: she'd laugh, or she'd become very angry and frustrated. Um, and she, when she was angry, she directed the. This was interesting. She directed the anger inward rather than outward, meaning she would scratch herself. She wouldn't make any noise. Um, we all know that children. When they're frustrated, when they're angry, they start making a bunch of noise. They start screaming, crying. They start yelling tantrums. at you. Tantrums. Um, when she was feeling very frustrated or angry, she never outwardly made noise. Um, she would always direct the, the anger inward, and she stayed very, very quiet, almost like she was going to get in trouble if she made a new noise, remember? Um, and so she would use other objects to make noise. She would rip a piece of paper or push a chair. She would use objects to make the noise that, that she, she needed couldn't to express herself. But she was too afraid just instinctually to do. Um, it's just – I found that so, so crazy. It's like a mental adjustment. It's so sad. It's so sad that she – because she's basically the, – the whole time she grew up, all those 13 years, she was taught first and foremost to, to suppress be quiet. any – be quiet and suppress any sort of expression, right? You don't – you and that's why she looks so like blank all the time and she never looks like she is reacting to anything. Well, it's also like you gain an understanding for like facial expressions by seeing that on other people. And if she's not seeing anybody and if she is seeing people for very brief periods of time, you know, that's what she's learning from other people. Um, so you'll notice a, a theme of Irene giving up little bits and pieces of information um, about Jeannie's background throughout the years, right? And so this is one of those is that she was forced to suppress expression. Um and is she was either Irene was either really embarrassed, I guess, at her role in this and knew that she had not done what well, obviously I, I think so, or she was just oblivious and didn't know no, that she had I, even done anything wrong. I feel like she would have been embarrassed, yeah. maybe oblivious to some parts of it, 
but embarrassed overall, I would believe. She's described as ghost-like because if she's not being engaged with, she is just wandering around her space, and, and she looks just very detached from everything. She's literally just wandering around, rubbing her finger against the wall, you know, completely out of it. I, I wonder like, what was in her mind as she was doing that. Was she just taking in all of these sensory things, or was she actually thinking things? She well, must have been, like, taking everything in, right? It could have been, like, tactile stuff. Like, you have yeah. a lot of senses that she's, like, suddenly mm -hmm. experiencing. Another person brought into this team was Jay Shirley, a professor of psychology and behavioral sciences. sciences. He's from Texas, and he's a big Texas guy. Um, and he was more interested in the socio-emotional rather than the cognitive. Shirley... This is like uh, just the, the the this is I understand it's for science and they're studying and they're trying to use this to better the rest of the world right in case something like this happens again yeah. they know what to do um, and understanding how the mind works on a fundamental level it is level. still just insane the some of the stuff that they come up with right so Shirley suggests putting her back into that environment who would suggest that putting her back in I don't I don't believe a bad guy. <laughs> But he suggests putting. I don't her, know. He sounds like a freaking bad guy right now. <laughs> he surely suggests putting her back into an environment like the one she was used to, but without the abuse, and bringing her out gradually into the world to reverse some of the trauma that she had being thrust into the outside world just immediately, and hopefully allowing for an easier study for the team to see how she kind of adjusted just to everything yeah. i mean yeah. and like i get that i get trying to reverse some of that trauma um and they did the team did consider it but it was it was rejected eventually i just feel like that would have been so traumatic still like it would have been like no tra trauma on trauma well it, 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 i i don't know i, I think, think the question is like sometimes i don't know you gain comfort from stuff that's familiar too mm -hmm. so i did, did I, I see where he was coming from but like yeah. The immediate suggestion of that, I don't know. So when she arrived at the hospital, basically her development began immediately. She has all this sensory stuff around her. Which, it could be a shock to your system, though. It could be a shock to your system, but, like, the, the fact that she just did start developing immediately just proved that, like, part of it was, like, just being in a fucking room. Mm -hmm. Just being in a fucking room and, like, nothing, nothing. You get a raincoat every other Tuesday. Um it was slow, but it was happening. She was helping to dress herself by some by a, a certain point. Uh, she was using the toilet little by little because remember she's very incontinent. Um, she is learning. Kent noted that JD began a playtime ritual. Also, I found this really interesting, where she would play with an object, she would drop it, and she would repeat until eventually the object she she'd done it so many times the object is destroyed. So this was very important for her because she wasn't abused for dropping the object. You know, she's making a noise. She's doing something, and she is not being punished for it. And she's like, and she tests it again. Yeah, and so she tests it again. So she picked up on that that she wasn't being abused for, it. and so she has this sort of license to do something that she's not getting in trouble for. She's being able to take charge for this action, and she's learning. She's able to do that, and she's able to take charge of something and do something. Um, and so the first few times she does it, she's like laugh, but she's like super nervous, and then laugh becomes more relaxed each with each time she does it because she's realizing she is, this is her agency. She's able to do this, and she's able to make this decision. And sometimes she would laugh so much that it would bring tears to her eyes, and she's just like... Just breaking this toy. It's brought her so much joy. You it's know, relief. just that I'm allowed to break things. <laughs> no, that's nice, though. It was really nice. Um, Kent And Kent allowed this. You know, he sees it as an attempt at active mastery of formerly traumatic situations. I didn't come up with that. I wrote that down verbatim. <laughs> so, <laughs> she was also learning to express herself outwardly, like with, with anger. So one time there was a... <laughs> 
<laughs> there's one time where this little girl was wearing her same wearing a hospital dress that Jeannie had also worn at one point and so Jeannie recognized the dress on this little girl and she went into a fit she was very angry about this she says <laughs> that's my dress <laughs> very upset with the girl um but this showed that Jeannie was learning like a sense of self um she also began to hoard objects, so she was so showing a sense of possession. These are all things that she's learning naturally, right? Like, it's so crazy to think that these are things that we just... Take for granted. ...learn. You know, if you're locked in a room without anything, you're not going to learn these things. But if you're in the world and you have things to interact with, you start learning these things naturally. It's just wild to me. Um, so she's... <laughs> you're going to love this one. She, she hoarded books. She loved to hoard books. I do the same thing. So <laughs> she would uh, she would hoard books. It's the same girl. Uh, paper cups um, and anything else made of plastic. She always loved plastic. Plastic was her favorite thing. And so Jeannie was really interested in learning the names for objects. Everything she came across, she wanted to know the name for. Um, and she would get really frustrated if she didn't know if she didn't get an immediate answer or immediate identification for an object. Um, and she was learning words, but she couldn't really put them into sentences. I remember well. hearing that. Yeah. So, like, she didn't really have grammar. Knowing what things are, but not knowing how to put things together so in a coherent would, like, sentence. she cup, and if she knew the word for cup, cup, she would just say cup, you know, something like that. Uh, uh, I, I still have problems putting words into sentences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I have a hard, horrible time with that. Um, so it was clear that she was understanding things, and that she was like, there was a light bulb on, right? It's not like it was. she was completely vacant. Um and she was taking stuff in. She just couldn't produce responses in that sort of a language sense. Uh, Jeannie was becoming less withdrawn, too. She wanted to actively horseplay, and she loved when people, when somebody would hold her and pretend to let her drop so they'd pick her up and they'd... <gasps> oh, really? Like, babies love well, that, well, you know? But, Toddlers but, love that. But it's also interesting because now she's becoming more comfortable with physical... Well, she has to become with, comfortable with everything. You have to learn everything before you can learn, like, no and stuff like that. But she learned no. Basically, the first thing she ever learned was no. Um, so she began to also show attachments very slowly uh, to people and not just objects. She hated children. She did not show any children. <laughs> so no kids. No kids. Uh, <laughs> Brenda feels the same way. She is doing you, baby. Books and no children. <laughs> um, she didn't care about children, just adults. And at first, she didn't really register James Kent from anybody else. Um, but he was a part of her daily routine. So James Kent was one of these people, one of the people on the team that really was there always with her. Yeah. Um, big part of her daily routine. She would go on walks with him and go on drives to the store. Um, and she didn't show any signs that she felt anything at first. She didn't show any signs that she felt anything when he would leave. But then little by little, things would happen. And there would be like a facial expression that registered that she's acknowledging that he's leaving. Like she'd make just something like some little expression or like that when he just leaves. Um, little by little, like a month later, she would hold his hand as a way to, like, detain him. Like, a month after that, she would grab his hand and, like, pull him back so that he wouldn't yeah. leave. Like, she's learning these Like, things. gradually becoming super attached. And it doesn't seem like anybody's teaching her this. It seems like she's learning this naturally, that this is just a natural, instinctual thing that she's doing. Um, and she did become very attached to him, and as well as she made friends with the adults around the hospital. She had a particular attachment to men with beards. Again, the same. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like Shirley. Like she had an attachment to Shirley because she really liked his beard. Um, so she's learning. And then here here comes Jean Butler. Remember this name. Jean Butler. That bitch. Um, 
Uh, she administered the special education program at the rehabilitation center. Um, Butler was described as a childless woman who loved children. She could identify with a child in an instant, it seems like. She was really, really, really good with kids, and she had an extreme patience with severely disturbed and handicapped children. This kind of came from her own childhood. Okay. Uh, so over time, there were a lot of questions about morality concerning Jeannie's case. They eventually, the team eventually received a grant, and they had to like present this case and say, "Hey, we can learn this from Jeannie. This is how we're putting together the grant." Um, and they did receive the grant. There's a lot of more morality questions around this. Um, they had to they after they received the grant, they kind of had to deliberate how to use it, and so Shirley pitched that they would. Uh, need to put Jeannie's interests above scientific research. Yes. Okay. So basically they would have to give Jeannie more than they were taking from her. Um, more than they were learning from her, yeah. they would be having to give her language and, and you know, responses and things like that. Um, and so there was Autonomy. Oh, uh, yeah. There was, uh, they would have to teach her more than they were learning from her. So they, there was a little bit of pushback on this, which crazy there would how would it be oh, yeah. some people saw this as a case too rare to really pass up and that they should use it as like a real learning opportunity and they had to like it, learn it, everything it's, it's already a learning opportunity like how is it yeah um eventually it was decided that the grant would be used primarily on language acquisition and would focus on watching how genie learned language rather than teaching it to her so they uh, i'm not completely opposed to this so they're watching how she learns language Right, they're watching how she's learning things, um, but they're not trying to actively teach it. To they're going to actively teach it to her. Yes, yes. So, like, if they're with her, they're going to teach her a word for a cup and stuff like that. They're not just like ignoring her, um, but they are very much wanting to know how she's learning things. So, Susan Curtis, um, that we kind of heard about earlier, she didn't come in until a little bit later, but she's still like a really big one. Uh, so, she came. She met Jeannie in 1971 after Jeannie had already begun learning language, and Jeannie hadn't learned enough to be tested with the standard linguistic test so tests were created specifically for genie they made genie got her own tests she didn't have to take the standardized testing um and 26 of them were made for genie so hot damn they just got 20 genie got her own 26 tests uh i think uh one of the scientists or one of the doctors um Riggler, uh also said that genie was the most tested child like ever um whether that's true or joke i don't know so Curtis would visit Janie regularly and watch and assess her progress. She replaced on on when James Kent would take Janie out. There was a there was a nurse that would go along, and Janie was pretty attached to the nurse. But Susan replaced the nurse because uh, to go out and because she wanted to watch her and like she would take around a notebook and write down every single word that Janie would ever say. Because apparently Janie was very very talkative on these drives. Really, um, again, not talkative like we would think. But like words. Maybe like identifying stuff. She's prob- Car, probably red. Yeah, she's probably doing that, is what I'm assuming. Yes. And so um, Susan Curtis goes along on these drives with them. And Janie gets so attached to her that they have to kick the nurse <laughs> kick the nurse out of the car. And Susan Curtis just starts going on these trips instead. Um and basically James Kent and Susan Curtis become like Jeannie's surrogate parents. parents. It's so like sweet, but also so sad at the same time. Um Curtis stayed with Jeannie all of the summer of 1971 through to the fall, uh, writing down everything that Jeannie says and hope that the big hope was that Jeannie was going to start using language to reveal things about her own past. Curtis was very interested in Jeannie revealing her own past. Yeah. Um, so now let's try, let's, let's bring Jean Butler back. <laughs> 
Janie also really liked Jean Butler. She was very, very comfortable with her. And Butler had earlier been approved to take Janie on field trips as well, just like Curtis and Kent did. Um, and Butler one time took her home to her own house and called the hospital and said that there was, at this time there was an outbreak of German measles. And so um, Jean Butler had taken Janie home and said, I can't bring Janie back. We, have, we both have German measles. We need to quarantine. <laughs> did they? So she, they did. They start quarantining. Um, I don't know if no, they I have mean, German. I don't know. I don't know. I'm thinking it's some bullshit, but they could have. They could have. Um, they definitely didn't have it for as long as Gene Butler said they did. But um, so they ended up quarantining. And Butler Butler did not like this team of specialists that were working on Jeannie. She really wanted to be like she thought she was the one that should be in there with Jeannie all the time, and she made a habit of like gossiping and bad mouthing the other specialists. Um, she called them the genie team, uh, and so she wouldn't let them make any house calls. They she wouldn't really let them come over all that often. She was very like she would push back a lot on them. On them, how long were by. they quarantining for? I don't know. See, this is the thing: is like every time they would call her and be like, "Hey, you are you better yet?" And she's like, "Oh no, we still have the German measles." That's why it's really suspicious to me, and I think that she was probably bullshitting, is because she kept saying, "Well, actually." We still have German measles. We get- <laughs> I don't know. It seems like isolationism again. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, she thought Susan Curtis was inept. She thought David Riggler was self-important. She thought James Kent was over-permissive. And all of them were ambitious and insensitive. It sounds like she gave the all of the details to this writer. <laughs> Maybe that's why the team didn't like the writer. Uh, no, I think, I think she did by the time the book came out. Oh, okay. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> Apparently, Jean Butler had a history of contention with the school system, though, the children's hospital, doctors and staff, all of that. She, she didn't like anybody, and nobody liked her, and it was really well known. So she was a Karen. Mm-hmm. It sounds like Jean Butler was a Karen. I <laughs> yeah. think so. Um, some of the specialists on the team recalled Butler wanting to be the next Ann Sullivan. That, that Butler said she wanted to be the next Ann Sullivan. Caregiver. But this is the thing about this, right? Is like there's so much he said, she said during this whole thing that we don't really know who was like telling the truth and who was just hiding their own bullshit. So it's just, it just seemed like there was a lot of fighting around Jeannie anyway and over Jeannie. There was a lot of fighting over Jeannie. Um, so in her book, in her journal, um, Jean Butler wrote student, <laughs> she really didn't like fucking Susan Curtis. So student Susan Curtis was a student. Student, yes. Student, she made sure to point out student. She's like, she is still in school. I am above this. Student Susan Curtis was in my home recording speech and attempting to amuse Jeannie. However, she followed the child and hovered over her most of the day. She had a notebook handy and discussed Jeannie's speech and lack of it and her eating habits in a critical manner in front of her. That evening, Dr. Riggler phoned and I told him that the help he was giving me in the house was not helping me. (laughs) Oh. So her so get this bitch out of my house. Get it out. Okay. <laughs> um, basically, in these journals, Butler just expresses concern that Jeannie is being tested too much also, which I, okay. I, I can understand that. Yeah. I can, Jeannie's learning. She's not, she shouldn't be overly tested and overly worked, you know. Maybe um, give her space. Give her space and let her kind of learn things. That's what the, the grant is supposed to do anyways. Yeah. Like, let Jeannie learn things. So remember, Butler kept pushing back the quarantine. Yeah. She kept saying, we still have German measles. We can't let her. I can't bring her back to the hospital. We give everybody the measles. Um, bullshit. So she kept pushing that back. And not long after that, guess what? 
Jean Butler applied to the Department of Public Social Services to become Jeannie's foster parent and legal guardian. No. At this point, Jeannie's legal guardian is an attorney named John, I believe it's Minor, John Minor. Um, so, because custody was obviously taken from, yeah. from Irene. And so, yeah, Jean Butler just wants to... Says, I'm going to be her foster mother. So I, I feel like I'm mystified at this point because I know somebody eventually, she lives with somebody for a long time, mm-hmm. but I, I don't, I feel like I've got it wrong. Okay, but let's, see, let's see how this story unfolds. Yeah. She does seem to have a pretty good life with Jean Butler, though. Like, she, Jean Butler doesn't seem to be, like, abusing Jeannie or anything. She just seems like she's trying to push the others out so that she can have dominion over Jeannie. And if she is trying to be the next Ann Sullivan, that... That's her intention, right? Is she's trying yeah. to get famous off of Jeannie. But it does seem that Jeannie really likes her and really likes living with her. Um, DPSS workers, social, I'm going to call them social service workers. Social service workers are hesitant about placing uh, a patient, though, in the home of somebody on the team of specialists there to help the patient, which seems like a conflict of interest. So I get it, right? Yeah. But <laughs> as of the time, um, they're also hesitant placing Jeannie in Butler's home permanently because uh, Butler is a single woman who is living alone. And they, they're they like, there's no man living in that house. Who's the father figure? Who runs a bank account? <laughs> so Jean Butler says, okay. Jean Butler does have a boyfriend. She says, boyfriend, move in. And the boyfriend moves in. She's like, look, we're a two-parent household now. <laughs> the Toms, man. The Did Tom, it work though? John Crawford Did they have had to, to get do that married? Too. They gave John Crawford a hard time about adopting children because they said John Crawford was single or divorced. Um, they gave us a hard time because we're... yeah. So Jean <laughs> Butler basically applies for this, and we're waiting, we're waiting for it. So, but during like you know Jeannie's stay with Butler, um, David Riggler is still coming in. Susan Curtis is still coming in, and David Riggler actually gets Jeannie a puppy. So something we didn't really t- touch mm. on was that Jeannie is afraid of dogs. She hates she hates animals. She hates dogs. She hates cats. She's terrified of them. And um, they really are trying to get her over this. And so David Riggler brings this puppy. Um, Poor puppy. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. So from behind defense, Jeannie is okay with the dog. She knows that it's behind a fence. Dog can't get to her. However, behind <laughs> behind a fence, if she sees a cat behind a fence, she's still terrified. She's like, <laughs> she's like, Key can get over here. <laughs> well, because cats can climb. Cats are fucking crazy. Cats are some evil. cats are your parents' cats are, is crazy. Your parents' cat is crazy. Yeah, but they're very much trying to break Jeannie's fear of dogs. So Wriggler uh, would also come over and have Jeannie watch Lassie with it, with him, and so he would sit and watch Lassie with Jeannie, and she just like was like, no, I want, I don't like dogs. I'm not, I'm not into the dogs. I don't care. Don't like them. Jean Butler basically says that Jeannie made. Such great progress in her house while she was staying with her. She's like, you don't even understand. In my house, Jeannie's learning full sentences. She can, she is, is potty trained now. She, you know, can speak in full sentences. She's doing fantastically. Why would you remove her from my house? You know, she's really making this case. I don't know, I'm calling bullshit on that one too. Um, but it's, yeah. Well, she has everybody coming through the house, right? So yeah. I, I, I would figure they'd be able to they witness would, some of this, right? She is kind of keeping them at, at arm's length, though. So, like, I don't know how much they're able to see here. Um, but I don't know. Gene Butler also asked for a 38% increase in pay as being part of the the Ginny team. Um, 
And then the application to be Jeannie's foster home was eventually rejected by DPSS, and Jeannie is taken away from the home and back to the hospital. And Jean Butler wrote that Jeannie was very upset and did not want to leave her home. Uh, and was saying, no, no, no. She was only there to quarantine for the measles. I know, but Jean Butler says, well, when I told Jeannie that she had to go with these people and go back to the hospital, then she said, no, 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 and I don't want to do it. And if this is true, it's very sad. Yeah. She's being ripped from a home that she's very much enjoying. She already she got established. There. Yeah, and apparently yeah. she really liked Jean's um, uh, boyfriend also. Her boyfriend was named Floyd, and she really, yeah, Jeannie, Jeannie did like these people, you know. Um, but interesting enough, <laughs> Uh, Jeannie was not in the hospital long before she was placed into a foster home, that of David Riggler and his wife, Marilyn. So David Riggler, who'd been bringing the puppy over and trying to get her. Oh, yeah. yeah. And like he, he, he was a leading person on this team from the very beginning. And so he, um, yeah, Jeannie is placed in their care. And remember, DPSS That said, sounds said, like it's the same conflict. They said, it's the conflict of interest. We can't give her to you because it's conflict of interest. Um, do you think it might have the fact to do with that? The- that they're married. Oh yeah, that they yeah. were married, and there's this like two parent household, and yeah, all instead of, of unwed. Uh, of course, of course. So David Riggler said he was surprised by uh, that they rejected Gene Butler's application, and that, but that he had no part in it, which Gene Butler does not believe. Gene Butler believes this was a, a scam from the beginning. Yeah, it sounds like sounds it. like I it. I cannot I, say it. I don't. Matter. I don't disagree, but no. I don't know. I don't have the mm-hmm. all the deets. Yeah, Riggler said that his partner, Howard Hansen, had suggested the idea of Jeannie living with him and his wife. Um, And since there were no alternatives, homes to place her in, he said, okay, well, I'm going to talk this over with my wife, Marilyn. We're going to talk about it and talk to our kids about it and make this decision as a family because it's a big deal. Yes, Remember, this is – I know we kind of went over, like, how disturbed Jeannie was um, and how, you know, she had incontinence and she has – she does have issues. She's a full-time care for yes. full-time care. This for is her, a family yeah. that's already established. This is David Riggler, his wife, Marilyn. They have three adolescent children. They have the dog <laughs> and they have a cat. Um, and so it's a big decision. You know, it is a big decision taking her in, but they do decide to take her in. They said that they were only going to take her in for about three months to a year. Jeannie ends up staying with them for four years. Oof. Very long time. Um, the Riggler's house is also in a really exclusive neighborhood. And I looked up Laughlin Park in Los Angeles, and Cecil B. DeMille even had uh, an estate there at one point. It apparently was like this uh, really like hustling, bustling um, part of Los Angeles that a lot of movie stars would move into like before this. Oh, my gosh. Jeannie was she upgraded. She went to Bel Air, man. <laughs> Jeannie in Bel Air. Fresh Jeannie of Bel Air. Um yeah, but uh, so in the book it says that <laughs> at the time the Wrigglers moved into this neighborhood, it's a slump, but the doctors would still move there. I'm like, okay, well, it's a slump. Really yeah. Good. Okay, calm down. Um, yeah, so Jeannie's room That's in the what house, they call though, Austin. Jeannie got to move into their library. What? She loves books. She loves books. I love books. books. She did love books. So they had this in mind. And so remember, Jeannie loves books. She hoards books, but she's also destructive. So they did have to rearrange the room and kind of put the books away because Jeannie, if she opened a book and looked at a page and liked it, she would just take the page. (laughs) (laughs) She said, I love that Jeannie just is all about self-care and happiness. You know, she's like, "Mm, I want it. I want it. I got it. I got it. Um, 
But so there, there was a lot of adjustments to be made, right? This is a, a family here. They have to adjust to Jeannie. Jeannie has to adjust to them. And so when Jeannie arrived, um, it was challenging. And she started out defecating in all the rooms pretty much. And she would hide it. Um, at one point, David Riggler said that she took cologne and masked the smell. So, I mean, she's thinking about she's it. She's thinking about it. Um, she's very incontinent, and about every every ten minutes or so, when she first arrived, she would be uh, pee herself. It's a new space, yeah. But that like that went away qu- very quickly. Um, she very much got used to like being there, and she was comfortable there, and she was comfortable with David Wrigley, Wrigley, and Wrigler. Wrigler, Wrigler. She was comfortable with David Wrigler and and his wife Marilyn. She like actually grew to really love Marilyn. She like loved Marilyn. Um, but remember, Wrigler's had that puppy. And so they had to, like, figure out how to, like, get her comfortable with this dog. So at first they would have the dog outside. They would never have the dog in, in, in the house at the same time. They would have the dog outside, separated by the glass sliding door. And then over time, when Jeannie was comfortable with it, they opened the sliding door and there was a screen door. So they would have the screen door. And, you know, Jeannie would become comfortable with that. And eventually they opened the screen door and the dog would come inside. And at one point, um, the dog was, like, turned away from Jeannie and Jeannie reached over and touched the tail and David Riggler said from then Janie was perfectly fine with the dog you know I don't know if she was like in love with the dog but like tolerant tolerant of the dog dog. yeah so she was okay Um, there was a moment during this that I'm all engaged in the dog Janie stuff I know I am too (laughs) (laughs) I'm like I want her to have a puppy real bad I want her to love this puppy so there's one moment there's also a moment where Janie is in the house and she sees a picture of a wolf on a magazine in a magazine and she flips out and she is just not okay with it. She's like really upset. It really upsets her. Um, and David Riggler just cannot figure it out why she's so afraid of this dog. Remember, Irene is not giving us all the information. She's like giving us tidbits here and there. And so David Riggler asks her, do you know why she would be scared of like this picture? And she's like, oh yeah, actually because um, my husband Clark used to um, – imitate a dog and bark and growl at her in order to keep her quiet and so she wouldn't make any noise and when she would make noise he would go in there on all fours and growl at her from the shadows and then go up to her and like act like he was gonna bite her and then he would stand outside of her door and bark like ferociously for like an hour and fucking traumatized her acting like this damn dog and so no wonder she didn't love fucking like any of these damn dogs right and then david riggler's probably like i made her watch lassie really and you could have told me this earlier irene well he was definitely mentally ill that's fucking scary that's that's terrifying i will say one thing about that dramatized movie that we watched at the beginning of it um they have a close-up of of genie and in the background in the shot you can see shadows but you can only hear a growl and it's terrifying. That is scary. That is scary. And no wonder she was fucking traumatized from that, too. Um, I don't know. But, like, at least now they know that, right? Yeah. And they can, like, act accordingly. It's like, Irene, give us the information. Did but he also like, act like a it. cat? She's, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, yeah, I don't know. He acted like he, maybe. Um, so the grant that they, the team had gotten, remember, had provided $100,000 over two years in research. The David Wrigley, Wrigley, Wrigley. David Riggler stopped much of his work at the children's hospital when Jeannie came to live with them so that he could focus most of his time on Jeannie. His wife, Marilyn, was also paid about $500 to $1,000 a month um, to care for Jeannie and to, like, you know, she was she was really helping her. her with developmental stuff. Um, they also got about $230 a month in foster care support, uh, which goes t- towards food and anything that the foster child would need. Um, and... 
It's a good amount of money. Yeah. Especially back then, money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Jeannie being at the regular house was a huge benefit to the team, it seems like, because they could work with Jeannie and go there and study her. And Unlike before. Jean Butler was not shutting them out, right? And now Jean's Butler shut out, you know? Um, I don't know if Jean Butler keeps coming around. I couldn't find I, – I, I don't think I wrote down whether she was still coming around at all at this point. But um, Susan Curtis was there about every damn day writing stuff down. She would basically show up with a red notebook and write down every single word Jeannie would say. Remember, Susan Curtis wants to know about Jeannie's past and wants Jeannie to, like, express that and, like, s- talk about her own past. Um, so Jean Butler's there writing down everything that Jeannie's saying. Not Gene Butler. <laughs> Susan Curtis is <laughs> a lot of damn scientists in this story. <laughs> um, Jeannie is still learning, but was growing older and seemed to be doing the thing that teenagers do. They're, she's stubborn, right? She's really stubborn. Um, teenagers are just stubborn, and it doesn't matter how developmentally delayed she, she's going to exhibit that same sign. Um, and so most of the time, like she was saying words and she was stringing, she was able to string like two, three words together into a sentence. So she would, the the example that the book gives is like, so Jeannie would say something like Monday, Curtis come. I mean, Curtis is coming. Yeah. Susan Curtis coming Monday. But instead, Jeannie got lazy and didn't want to say all of that. And so she would, she would, uh, uh, condense her words and sentences and say something like, so Monday, Curtis come home or Monday, Curtis come would turn into Munka. She found her own way to fucking communicate. She said, mm-hmm. I don't want to say all this. She words. said, you're a scientist. You figure it out. You figure it out. She <laughs> said, I see that notebook. Do it. You can do it. Um, so she could say these full words, but she didn't want to. She just didn't want to. Um, Curtis would also play the piano for Jeannie, and That's Jeannie nice. apparently was just mesmerized by this. She would stand there, and Curtis said she looked like she was almost hallucinating Um listening to this music and this it was usually only classical music and only if it was being played live and Riggler says that this was because she would hear when she was in the room strapped to the potty chair there was a neighbor boy who would play the piano she would hear that this is one of her only cry. I like I feel like real sad every time I hear anything about this stuff and GD and like I look at her face and she's just so sweet um so again, Jeannie's very close to Marilyn Riegler. Um, and when Jeannie would get upset and she would still get destructive, right? She would start clawing at herself and like moving things to make noise. And like she'd, she's not fixed, you know? Yeah. She's not, the, you're never she's gonna not be. healed. So she's not fully rehabilitated. Exactly. So she's still like reverting to certain things. And so Marilyn so I thought, oh, well, Jeannie's a woman. Vanity will help that. And so she, Marilyn would paint Jeannie's fingernails yeah and because Jeannie one didn't want to mess them up she wouldn't claw at things <laughs> and Jeannie also apparently loved being told that she was pretty if it, somebody would tell Jeannie that she was pretty Jeannie loved it I mean she who like, doesn't oh, who loves tell me I'm pretty please <laughs> <laughs> Baby, you're pretty you're pretty stop Jeannie yeah. um, loved it and so Marilyn would use that tactic and would say and if Jeannie started like clawing at herself or like doing you know throwing a tantrum Je- uh, Marilyn would say, well, Jeannie, you don't look very pretty. And so Jeannie would stop. Yeah. She'd be like, oh, <laughs> we can't have this. Um, during Jeannie's fits, yeah, she said, I must be beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> during Jeannie's fits, Marilyn would also say, you are upset. You are having a rough time. She seemed very caring. And it got to the point where Marilyn would say, you are upset. And Jeannie would finish with rough time, rough time. And rough time eventually turned into, like, she would aggressively shake her finger she would shake her finger and that was her expressing that rough time rough time 
Um, and she would stop saying rough time. She would just... So Jeannie is learning language, and this is all they want is Jeannie to learn language. Jeannie's learning language, but she's doing it in her own way. She's learned how to use language in her own way. Oh, in a way that works for her. Yes. She knew a little bit of sign language. They taught her a little bit of sign language, so she could she could sign things sometimes. And she would, you know, turn something like a phrase like rough time into... And they knew it, and she knew that they knew it. So she's learning things. Jeannie's language looks like a two-year-old, right? And, and with kids, all kids, doesn't matter how slow or fast they learn language, they're going to learn it in the same sorts of steps. And so the, the idea is here that a toddler will know, will learn like, you know, a couple words. You know, they start learning words very slowly and then they start stringing them together really slowly. So like a sentence will be like two words, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's, this is what Jeannie's doing, like two or three words. And then at some point that toddler or however old they are, there's an explosion of words and they just start saying words for everything. They just start saying all these words and then they start putting all these words together and it's this explosion of speech and they just start talking, right? So Jeannie made it to the the stage where she's starting to string like two, three words together and saying different things. But Jeannie never had that explosion of language, of speech that they were hoping for, you know? Um, And she would really prefer to gesture her language in other ways, whether shaking a finger or sign language or, you know, pointing at something or guiding somebody to something. She had her own way of doing yeah, it. Yeah, she didn't like to verbalize what she wanted. She performed language. Okay. Um, uh, Jeannie had... Jeannie just had a very unique way of communicating. Out in public, she could... This is what I found really sweet, is that out in public, she was very... She learned to be very expressive, especially with her eyes. Her eyes were very expressive. So she could give a look or an expression to somebody, just random random person, stranger, and show that she liked something or that she was interested in something, like really hone in on something with her eyes. And they'd give it to her. Like there was one one instance where there was a woman and Jeannie was fixated on this faux pearl necklace and this woman took off her faux, faux pearl necklace and gave it to Jeannie. Is she wearing that in one of the pictures? I don't know. I don't. I, I should have looked for that. Um, this? No, that is the very first picture ever taken of Jeannie. She's 13 there. That's when she was first taken from her parents. Okay. Yeah, that is a photographer's photo. Um, so, but because Jeannie is not hitting this explosion that they're all hoping that she's going to hit, other scientists are starting to call her and this study a failure. They're saying, well, Jeannie's a failure. You know, she's not going to give us what we want. What we're hoping for is that she'll be able to do a mathematical equation and, you know, speak with the queen at one point over, over the peace. You know, but like a failure, a failure. Yeah. This is sad. Okay. So I found this sentence really interesting from the book. It kind of describes her language a little bit. She could categorize. Some people have said that categorizing is the key to learning language, that grammar is just organizing things into smaller and smaller smaller categories. Jeannie could organize, but she couldn't learn grammar. Perfectly said, I think. So she can organize things and, like, organize a thought and, and um, put it into language, but she just doesn't know grammar. Um, so one time they asked her. One time they also asked her to replicate a structure using like popsicle sticks. So they had, she looked at this this structure, and they made out of popsicle sticks, and they said, "Recreate it, Jeannie," and she did like perfectly, like by color and everything, and like she was very bright in that way, and she was there. Um, other scientists were saying that Jeannie wasn't there, and Curtis insisted that she was. Curtis said, you know, uh, Susan Curtis said that Jeannie was more mentally disturbed than intellectually disabled. 
right? That makes sense. It does make a lot of sense. And the Wrigglers very much agreed with this, that Jeannie was intelligent and she could do things, but she was learning to do things in her own way, which was completely going against the study that they were wanting to do because they were wanting to make this this child. A linguistic study uh, instead of a communication study. Yeah, so she was very curious also, and the Wrigglers even taught her how to do tasks. And remember, it is... <laughs> Like nineteen seventy something, so the tasks that Jeannie learns to do. You want to take some guesses? Wash dishes. She learns to iron. She probably learned to wash dishes. Um, she learns to sew, and she gets to sewing by hand and by machine. She's able to sew by both, right? <laughs> the woman's work. Honestly, it, but but those things are very important, yeah. you know. And that she's able to do that shows that there's a light bulb on there, right? Yeah, like she's able to do things because the, the the dexterity that goes into some of that. You know, it says earlier in the book, and I didn't even write this down, that like her fingertips, like while she moved very slow. Um, and we saw that sort of clip of her moving. Her fingertips could, like, go really fast, and she could flip through pages of a book, like, really fast. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she had a lot of dexterity. Mm -hmm. So She'd be good with video games. <laughs> she was also great with sketching to communicate if she didn't know a word. So one thing that always interested Curtis, again, remember, is if Jeannie would ever be able to talk about her past and relate memories from her past. Um, and there was one time where they went to the hospital. They were doing something at the hospital, and they were walking down the hospital hallway, and there was a little boy came up and shot a toy gun at them, and Jeannie was scared. She got scared, and she called the little boy a bad boy and said, bad gun. And from then, she started saying, I don't think this was the same day, but she, from here, started saying different things. Like she started saying, father hit genie big stick. Father take peace big wood hit cry. So she's relating memories. She's talking about her past and talking about her memories. And it's incredible, you know? She's like hitting these these things. That I mean, but you also, like, there's a subject there, there's a verb, there's connections. You know, like, I just think that's not even so important. It's just not. It's, it's, she's it's not, but it's definitely there. It's there. It's there, you yeah. Know? So to call Ginny a failure is like so wrong. It's so off. And, um, but I think what they were missing, what this team of scientists were missing was that she was communicating and she was doing these things and she was talking about her past. She was able to talk about her past and have memories and think about them and then tell them to somebody, you know? Um, so let's bring it back to Irene for a second. Let's bring Irene back into the story. Mm. Irene had basically been coming around occasionally over the years. She basically saw Jeannie like once a week um, over over this whole time. Um, and we're talking about a four-year period, you know? Um that's more than I thought. Yeah. And so it was really important to the team that Jeannie, again, maintain contact with Irene because that was the only link she had to her past. I don't get it. I guess they wanted her to have a link to her past, but she they, they had her mother in her life. They made sure that her mother was in her life. And she didn't appear to ever acknowledge her brother, but she would definitely acknowledge her mother. She wouldn't always, like, run up and hug her or anything like that, but there were times where Jeannie would get very close to her mother's face and look – and Jeannie would, like, look her in the eyes or, like, do something like that, you know, something very – to me, that's a very intimate. personal. It is very intimate, very personal, um, and it is very powerful, you know. Irene basically had been bouncing around Los Angeles, and she was living in, in the, the Clark Wiley house, you know, because she'd inherited that. Uh, and that was split three ways mm. between Jeannie, um, Irene, and, and John. But, like, where else was she going to go? She owned this house. She was just going to stay there, you know. Um, I feel I feel awful about that. She, yeah. Well, I mean, you could try to sell it. I don't know how she, like, 
would look into Jeannie's room and not see that for the rest of her life in the, the way that was, you know? She must have been really closed off to it and really, like, hardened herself not to see that and just burst into tears. She did, like, redecorate the house a bunch and, and like, make it completely unrecognizable on the inside, but still, you know? I think I would walk in that room and I would see Jeannie strapped to a potty chair at 10 years old. And so Irene would basically just go around to wherever Jeannie was staying. Whatever foster home Jeannie was at, she, Irene would go over there. Except for the Riggler house, um, Irene didn't really go, didn't ever go to the Riggler house more than like two or three times. She would always, the Rigglers would always have Irene meet Jeannie in a neutral place. We'll get to that later because uh, Jean Butler is taking notes of all this shit. She's like, hmm, okay, hmm. Um, so Irene just sees... Jean Butler again? Jean Butler is still here. She is still here in the shadows. She's not going away. Um, Irene just seems to be very detached and disengaged to me. She seems like she kind of is closing that chapter off in her mind and won't even like acknowledge any of that past trauma, right? Um, even though she's had therapy. But this might be trauma too. That might be her way of dealing with her own trauma. I don't know. Uh, the book makes a good observation that Irene... I, I thought this was really good. This was a really good way to put it. Irene spent so long under Clark's control. And when she finally got her way and was able to take her child, and they got out of there, they got out of that situation, the first thing that happens is she gets her child taken away. She gets arrested. She's all over the news being called, you know, child abuser. And then Clark kills himself. That's trauma. Like, she left. And yeah. then it was just a chain of negative events that followed that. And what does that do to her mind also, right? That can't that can't be good. Um, yeah, I, I never... I would have probably not framed it like that mm. if you hadn't. Yeah. So it seems like Irene just pretty much lived a quiet pretty sad life um she had a small inheritance from clark's estate but like that was dwindling pretty fast and she would sew and sell dolls for money and she even mortgaged the house that she was living in so paid all house and she just mortgaged it because she needed money um gene butler was pissed about <laughs> obviously gene butler is pissed we'll bring it back to gene butler gene butler is pissed about being rejected um and then Riggler getting to take Jeannie, right she, so this is like four years oh she is like this is this is over the whole four years it does not matter gene butler is pissed and she is holding this grudge and she is um she's going to ruin everything she's going to make sure she ruins everything she's going to burn it all to the ground so this is a breaking point between her and the team, and she basically went around trashing their names and trying to avenge herself, right? Um, Jean got... Jean Butler basically became a bug in Irene's ear and became in regular... She came in regular contact mm. with, with Irene and got like made sure that Irene was like on her side, and she became friends with Irene and talk all the time, and... Uh, Jean Butler was gossiping to Irene and telling them all these bad things about the doctors and bad mailing them and saying, you know, they're doing all this. They're, they're not handling Jeannie right. They're doing all this bad stuff to Jeannie and, you know, really putting a, a sour bug in, in Irene's ear. And it, it does seem like it was working. It seems like Irene was growing more and more agitated with the team of, with Jeannie's well, so team. It's, it's like you already have somebody who is mm -hmm. known to be be somebody who has trauma and you are giving them a impressionable. Like, yes. Impressionable. Yeah. 
So she's Irene does seem very impressionable. I did, Irene also positive note got her eyes fixed. She was able to have the cataracts taken out. Um, she did go blind later on in life due to glaucoma, but she was you know she got her eyesight fixed for a little good while. Um, and she was so when she got her eyesight fixed. Remember, she had never seen Jeannie basically. She was blind. She didn't really know what Jeannie looked like or how she acted or anything like that. So when she saw Jeannie walk for the first time, she was horrified and she thought it was all the doctor's fault. And she was like, what did I think what they said in the book was she asked, what did you guys do to her? You know? Wow. I know. What did you do to her? And (laughs) basically she couldn't comprehend or just wouldn't admit her role in Jeannie's condition. You know? Um, Irene pretty much felt on the outside of Jeannie's new life and all of these people that were in her life. She felt on the outside. She felt like they didn't like her, that they didn't want anything to do with her. And she's just becoming more and more antagonized. And this is going to blow over a little bit later. So basically years pass and Jeannie's progress kind of slowed just because she learns how to do her own form of communication. She learns how to communicate herself and she's pretty comfortable with it. So I guess by like scientist standards, she was slowing down. But in her own way, she was not. She She was learning still, but doing it in her own way, just not... The way they wanted to, too. But so that, remember, they had like a $100,000 grant over two years. Yes. And that was coming back up for review. So they needed to present this case that Jeannie's, Jeannie, they should they should be given more grant money to like keep researching and doing all of this stuff. And <laughs> enter Jean Butler, and she wrote all these criticisms. All the criticisms she could. <laughs> Jean Butler just wrote all the criticisms that she could about Jeannie's lack of progress and basically saying that when she was with me, she was speaking full sentences, and now she's regressed. She's basically like what she was when she first went to the, went to the hospital. Jean also criticized the Wrigglers for uh, being really harsh towards Irene. She said that they were really mean towards Irene. They wouldn't allow Irene at their home. They would make her have her weekly visits with Jeannie and other places. And Marilyn Wriggler said that this was pretty much so that Irene wouldn't come over to their house and see Marilyn acting motherly towards Jeannie. Mm, makes sense. And she didn't want to make Irene feel feel bad, right? This could be just, again, bullshit on book parts. We don't know. We just don't know. Or, or it could be partial truths. Yeah, I think so. I don't, I don't know. Jean um, also said that the Wrigglers weren't giving Irene any money. They said that even though they traveled on the Genie Fund, which is like conferences, they would. Like, there was a couple sketchy like conferences that were listed in the book. There I feel like there always is with that much money. There's a conference in Hawaii, and I'm like, do you need a conference in Hawaii? Do you need it? But who doesn't need, who a, doesn't conference need a conference in Hawaii? In Hawaii? Um, but she's saying they're basically traveling around on the Genie Fund, and they have foster care assistance, and they're still not giving uh, Irene any money, and they're making Irene travel out to these places to meet Genie, but not giving her any travel money or anything like that. Um, she wrote, she she wrote it, <laughs> mother's need versus Wrigler's greed. <laughs> she must have been super she proud of that fucking, she's proud of it but she fucking hates the Wrigglers she hates all of these scientists um, she I'm guessing she keeps putting all of this stuff into Irene's ear like they're not giving any money they're being really mean not letting you at their house what is? What are they hiding? They so, just want you out so of the Irene picture. So Irene is impressionable and is going to latch onto this. Yeah. So this is this is basically the grant is rejected and the research basically ends. Um, not. I don't think because of this. I think the scientists were whoever was giving the grant basically sees Jeannie's lack of progress and sees that the Wrigglers didn't really like follow the the suggestions of the people giving the grants to like study her. And, and they say, well, we're just not going to give you any more grant money. So then what happens? Okay. Bungong get heated. Gong get heated. Okay. So the, 
Jeannie turns 18 and basically the Ricklers agree to end their foster care. So Jeannie's been living with them for four years. This makes me so sad. Just adopt her. But I get it. Like, it, 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 like we hear about all of Jeannie's progress and that Jeannie's happy and stuff like that. But it must have been very challenging having GD in their home. And like they have to be with her all the time, right? They have to give her constant attention, watching after and attention and, and learning and like keep her stimulated. Um, but they – so they agree to end their foster care of Jeannie and they let her go live with her mother at the old house that she spent 13 at years the old house? trapped in. And strapped to a fucking potty chair, Jeannie goes back to live in that house with her fucking mother. How is that in any way okay? And how did anybody allow it? How, like, it infuriates me. So do you think Irene's going to be able to handle Jeannie? No. Irene couldn't handle Jeannie the first 13 years because she didn't have to do anything with Jeannie. Jeannie was strapped to a fucking chair. Irene never had to parent Jeannie. And now... Being strapped to a fucking chair for 13 years kind of messes up your brain. Jeannie is very challenging. She's, you know, it, it takes a team of specialists to, like, really help her and yes. teach her things. Um, Irene obviously couldn't handle Jeannie. Uh, she'd never taken care of her anyway. And so, like, she finds all Jeannie's actions disturbing. She's, like, seeing this all for the first time that Jeannie's, like, masturbating openly. Or that Jeannie is, like, shoving food. A big thing that Jeannie would do is shove food in her mouth and just hold it there until... Because she couldn't really chew solid foods all that much. So she would hold it in there until the saliva would break it down, and then she would swallow it. Um, so she's doing all of these things that Jeannie just does, and Irene is, like, very disturbed by all of it. And she blames the Wrigglers for all of the way that Jeannie is. And she's like, the Wrigglers, this is why Jeannie is this way. What did they do to her? Um, so the Wrigglers basically try to help. They, they say, we're going to hire babysitters. Um, they set her up in summer school so that she, Irene can send her somewhere and people can take care of her. And they set her up for daycare. But Irene's fucking lazy and doesn't take Jeannie to any of these things. She doesn't take her to summer school or daycare. And she like, would basically say, Jeannie, do you want to go? And Jeannie would be like, no. And Jeannie, Irene would be like, okay. And Jeannie lays around the house. Remember, at the Wrigler's house, Jeannie has all of this stimulation, music. There's always people mm. tending to her. She has music. She has art. She has all of these things that she's always being stimulated by. And she goes to laying around the house all day. No stimulation. Again, in that same fucking house, no stimulation. Um, so Irene, isolated. Irene cannot handle her. She calls social services. She doesn't call the Wrigglers. She calls social services and Jeannie basically bounces from foster home to foster home. Uh, after, after the age 18? After age 18. Yeah. Because she's not, she can't be counted as an adult who can take care of herself. She's counted as an adult who is incapacitated. Okay. Um, and so she has a guardian. Um, and it's just the callousness of this that she, she literally, takes Jeannie from the space. They, they, the, but the Wrigglers gave her Jeannie. They gave her Jeannie. And then she calls social services and um, they come and take her and, and put her in foster homes. And so basically at the foster homes, Jeannie starts regressing like immediately, really fast. Um, she is like, there's one foster home that she shows up with all of her collected plastic containers that she loves so much. She loves all her plastic containers. Um, the foster family puts them in a closet and she's not allowed to play with them. She can't have them anymore. Um, one foster home is also really super strict and like thrives on cleanliness. That's not the home for Jeannie then. It's not the home for Jeannie. Jeannie should never have been there. Um, and and Jeannie had a... Makes me think of wife's fault. 
out of everything, Jeannie did, despite everything, Jeannie did have a really strong bond with her mother. And that's what they all said, that she had a strong bond with her mother, which I guess it's her mother, you know, that does blood. Um, and so Susan Curtis would go over there and... Uh, it, it, so Susan Curtis was still doing... Still still making regular visits to, to Jeannie. Um, but Irene was like banned from seeing Jeannie anymore. So Jeannie eff- effectively stopped seeing um, her mother. But when uh, Susan Curtis comes over, she says that Jeannie would sign things like... Love my mother. I miss my mother. I miss mom. You know, things like that. And it just, like, fucking breaks my heart, man. It's crazy because it's like this Irene was an abuser. She was still abusing Jeannie, too. I mean, you can love your abuser. That's definitely, like, a a thing. But Jeannie saw her as the one who kept her alive and kept her going and would come and sneak food to her sometimes, you know? Um, So Jeannie is obviously abused in all of these foster homes. There's one time where at one of these foster homes where Jeannie throws up and they beat her for it and tell her if she throws up again that she'll get another beating. And so Jeannie basically stops speaking because she's scared to open her mouth. So she stops speaking altogether. She doesn't open her mouth. If, she, if it's time to eat, she only opens her mouth for a second to shove food in it and closes it. And she's always with her mouth closed. And she will sign towards Susan Curtis that she misses her mother. And it's just so sad, right? Like... This is not a child who needs any more abuse. That This is a child who learned, remember that James Kent said that she was learning mastery over her trauma, and now she's being given all of this trauma just again. Uh, it's, it's, it just breaks my fucking heart. Um, Curtis also says that Jeannie didn't understand why she was being moved from home to home so much, and that Jeannie believed that it was because she was a bad girl. And, like, would express that. Remember, she's not saying full sentences like this, but she's, like, conveying that she's a bad girl. And so she's just sad that that's what Jeannie thought. That's why she thought she was being moved around so much. But instead of caring about Jeannie, <laughs> Irene filed a fucking lawsuit against the team of scientists. And after Curtis completed... So Curtis completed her dissertation uh, called Jeannie, a psycholinguist. I'm horrible with words. Jeannie, a psycholinguist. Linguini. <laughs> a psycholinguistic? Psycholinguistic study of a modern day wild child. So Irene sues over this dissertation, says that basically it's a breach of patient confidentiality and that she accuses them of the whole team of treating Jeannie like a test subject rather than a person and overworking her with all these tests. And uh, the case actually went on for a long time until like 1984 yeah it was a long wow. time yeah eventually Irene didn't receive any money <laughs> so she lost but she also wins weirdly in the same respect because they shut down everything didn't they well no the court um, directs Susan Curtis to direct a program of linguistics for Jeannie she's not allowed to give Jeannie these tests but she is allowed to like she she creates a program for Jeannie to like learn speech and stuff still and the children's hospital is 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 um rec- is ordered to provide genie with like yearly care so it's good it works out well for genie so after student uh, susan curtis's um, dissertation goes public uh, she makes money on it and she makes she sets aside about eight thousand dollars in whatever 19 whatever money is um for genie it's a fund for genie she sets aside that money, and so after this, this. Uh, so she publishes her dish. She actually like book publishes. Bush, okay. book pu- yeah, and so she has about eight thousand dollars in ro- royalties that she puts in a fund for Jeannie, and she takes that eight thousand dollars and relinquishes the fund towards the the program that she has to. She's ordered by the court to create for Jeannie. Um, 
So much fuckery just happens over the years. It just infuriates me, dude. Like Jeannie is covered under, this is this is another one that's like crazy to me. Jeannie's covered under social security until they discover that she owns one third interest of her childhood home. They demand that she repay the money. How are they, uh, why is it like described like this? Is she going to the bank? Is she going, is she having phone calls with these people? And they're like, you need to give this money back. And she's like, oh, okay, I shall do that. No, she doesn't know what the hell's going on. And if, if if you have custody of her, you also have custody of her state. I don't, I don't understand. This. She had a four thousand dollar trust fund. So remember, John Minor was the attorney who basically had custody over her, um, and that's all supposed to be handled by John Minor. Uh, so John Minor says that the trust was for Jeannie's care and debts. Like, what debts does Jeannie fucking have? What country are we living in that Jeannie? It's a Tupperware. Tupperware is <laughs> expensive. It's the faux pearls. <laughs> Like have, what have you seen those Tupperware parties? Debts does Jeannie have? Um, Miner basically says that all of that that money is owed to Riggler, and that Riggler agree, and Riggler does agree with this that all the money is for him. So, but I did. It doesn't seem like this is a malicious thing. It seems more like to keep Jeannie from losing her benefits by oh, saying, yeah. "Yeah, that money's mine." She she doesn't get that money. Um, they're trying to keep her on Social Security benefits. They didn't want her benefits taken away from her. Um, so they also said that the money was part of the house, and the house is not a liquid asset, so it shouldn't even be counted. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's just a bunch of fuckery. But then, like, after Jeannie does turn 18, guess who fucking forgets to to update his status as her legal guardian? John Minor. Guess who gets fucking custody of Jeannie? Irene. Who doesn't even want Jeannie in her own damn house? And Irene basically bans all of the doctors and scientists who've worked on her over the last four years, four or five years, however long it was, from having any contact with Jeannie. This includes Curtis and the Wrigglers. Yeah. So then... She basically, like, bans them from seeing her anymore. Um, All of these attachments that Jeannie built and Jeannie formed with these people, all of that progress, just gone. gone. You know who doesn't, who isn't banned from Jeannie? Oh, that Jane Butler. Butler. Jane <laughs> Butler gets regular contact with with Irene. Basically, keeps trashing the scientists. Um, Jane Butler is basically the one who like masterminded her, this. Yeah, and basically convinced Irene to go and like sue them and you know all of that stuff. Um, Jane fucking Butler, man. Jane fucking Butler. But Jane has a stroke in 1986, and basically it leaves her with. That. So that's like two years later. Yeah, I'm writing this part down because it's like relevant to right now. But she she is left with aphasia, which is what Bruce Willis has. Oh. Yeah, that's why he's leaving Hollywood. So Bruce Willis has aphasia. I, I'm not exactly clear on what aphasia is still. I know it's something, a degenerative, like neurological thing. So I, I need to look that up. Um, and then Gene Butler dies in 1988. So over the, over the years, a few of the team members are able to see and have contact with Jeannie like a little bit more um, just at various points of Jeannie's life. Shirley sees Jeannie at Jeannie's 27th birthday and basically says that she is incredibly depressed and doesn't speak or do anything with anybody. Um, uh, she does keep contact with her mother over the, the course of her life, um, a very de- various degrees of frequency. At one institution that she's staying in, she's allowed to see her mom once a month, and then at another facility, she sees her every weekend. So it's like uh, Irene still wants to be in her life and still like visits her and stuff, but doesn't but want to take care of her. doesn't want to deal with her. doesn't want to deal with her. Um, it's kind of like visiting your friend's dog. And so Susan Curtis basically has not had contact with Jeannie since, since she was banned the first time and has made... Various attempts to 
have contact with Jeannie, even up until today. She still tries to see Jeannie and is is denied. She's not allowed. Um, Irene dies in 2003. Uh, How is she not allowed if Irene is already gone? I don't freaking know. She did, I, I, Irene dies in 2003. Um, John Wiley, it, it, he, he did give an interview. You can search the interview, and he kind of talks about mm-hmm. it and basically says that he didn't have any contact with them. Maybe saw them like once over the course of the years and stuff and had a lot of trauma on his own and felt very like left out and unimportant. Um, and he died in 2011 and Jeannie is now living in a private state care facility and access to her has not been allowed. Like people who want to do interviews, people want to uh, like come and like film her or do anything. It makes she's me suspicious. Honestly, she's basically living a very, very private life. I sent, I think I sent you a picture of her um, a little bit older. There is a picture of her from, I think it's the early two thousands. I'm pretty sure. This? No. Um, there is a picture of her, it's maybe from the early 2000s, but she she's older, and you can see what she looks like older. You can just search Jeannie Wiley now, and it's like the most updated picture that you can get from her. Um, but from – so there there is somebody, like a reporter who, who hired a private investigator and did it anonymously so that she could get information and found out that Jeannie is doing fine. Jeannie's doing okay, you know. She still knows sign language. She still communicates. She doesn't really speak, but she is okay. And is just living a very private life, and that and that the state is not allowing her to be, you know, part of this public story anymore, right? Like she gets her privacy now and gets to just be away from everybody and all of the fighting over her. And I just hope that she is now. I, I, enjoy, I mean, I hope she, she's, she's really lived a long life at and this enjoying point, her so. life. Yeah, she lived. Her dad didn't even think she was going to live till twelve. She's like. In her 70s now, she must be. Let me see. No, she, she was born in 57, right? Yeah. I don't know how long was. I know she's, she has to still be alive. Um, she It says that she is 64 or 65. So I, I just hope she's happy. And she gets Tupperware and yeah. gets to live all the rip all the pages out of all the books she wants to do. Okay, know? maybe not that. <laughs> But she gets to Alistair. She gets anything. Maybe she wants certain kinds of books. This is this story and and Jeannie Wiley just. She has such like a good place in my heart that I I think about her often and I've thought about her often ever since high school and I I always try to check up on her and and I call Jeannie I ask how she's doing um I know I just I, I Google her sometimes and just to see if anything else if there's any updates DM her Facebook I'm very interested in what's happened to her and I hope that she's very happy because. Just love her, you know. I feel love for her. Somebody I've never even met, and it's just like I see her face, and she just deserved the fucking world. So, someone who robbed. didn't deserve any any of this and could have had a completely yeah. different life. Absolutely, absolutely, and just people just fought over her. They just wanted attention, and they wanted, you know. I think the point of that research study was that she was supposed to. Uh, they were supposed to, she was supposed to get more from them than they were supposed to get from her, right? And it seemed like the world took more from her than she was able to ever take from the world. So. That's, uh, that's funny because that's exactly what they were supposed to do. Yeah. And as soon as she didn't show the progress that they needed her to show, they just gave up on her. They dumped her and didn't get any better from there. But I'm, I'm holding out hope that Jeannie is a very happy person today. That is the case of Jeannie Wiley. So I hope it wasn't too sad, too traumatizing, and we will uh, 
Way to start people out on a Monday, know, Zachary. Way Monday. to start it's people out on Monday. Yeah, probably say every Monday won't be this sad. Um, but we will. We hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. <laughs> and we will see you guys Friday for the late show. A little bit more fun at the late show. Yeah, positive energy. We did coffee t- today. We're going to be doing tequila on Friday. Yeah, the late show. We're going to have the, the episode will be the podcast episode. will be out on uh, early in the morning. And then if you come... If you're watching this in video format, the video format will be released in the evening because kind of keep it, make it a relation. Yeah, you know, that'll be nice. Like that, I don't know. Uh, and then, like, if you know, bring your beverage of choice, yeah, if you want to, we're having little cocktails, a little sip something, with us? A little sipper, little sippers. So, how do we say goodbye now? We're just saying bye. Goodbye, Letting the people go. <laughs> Adios, gentle listeners. <laughs>